With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yo, Dick. Come on. Give me the fortune, keep the fame, said my man Lewis. I agreed, know what he mean, because we live the truest lie. I asked him why we follow the law of the bluest eye. He looked at me, he thought about it, was like I'm clueless. Why? The question was rhetorical, the answer was horrible. Our morals are out of place, it got a lot full of sorrow. And so tomorrow coming later than usual, waiting on someone to pity us. While we find the beauty in the hideous, they say money's the root of all evil, but I can't tell, you know what I mean? Pesos, Frank Shams, Cowie Shells, Dollar Bills. Or is it the mind state that's ill, creating crime rates to fill the new prisons they build over money and religion there's more blood that spills the wounds of slaves and cotton fields that never heal what's the deal a lot of cats who buy records are straight broke but my language universal they be reciting my quotes while r&b singers hit bad notes we rock the boat of thought that my man lewis statements just provoke caught up in conversations of our personal worth brought up through endangered species status on the planet earth survival tactics means busting gaps to prove you hard your firearms are too short to box with god without faith all of that is illusion Raise my son, no vindication of manhood necessary. Not strong, only aggressive. Not free, we only license. Not compassionate, only polite. Now who the nice? Not good, but we'll behave. Chasing after death so we can call ourselves brave. Still living like mental slaves. Hiding like thieves in the night from life. Illusions of oasis making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life. Illusions of oasis making you look yeah. twice. I'm sure that everybody out listening agree that everything you see ain't really how it be. A lot of jokers out running in place, chasing the style. Be a lot going all beneath the empty smile. Most cats in my area be loving the hysteria. Synthesized surface conceals the interior. America, land the opportunity, mirages and camouflages, more than usually, speaking loudly, saying nothing, you confusing me, you losing me, your game is twisted, want me enlisted, and your usury, foolishly, most men join the ranks cluelessly, but foolishly accept the deception, believe the perception, reflection rarely seen across the surface of the looking glass, walking the street, wondering who they be looking past, looking gas, with them imported designer shades on, stars shine bright, but the light rarely stays on, same song, just remix, different arrangement, put you on the yacht, but they won't call it a slave ship Strangeness, you don't control us You barely hold us Screaming brand new When they just sanitize the old shit Supposes Just another clever Jedi mind trick That they've been running across stars Through all the time But I find it's distressing There's never no in-between We either niggas or kings We either bitches or queens The deadly ritual scenes Are first and the perverse Full of short attention span Short tempers and short skirts Long viral automatics Released in short bursts The length of black life Is treated with short work Get yours first Them other niggas secondary that type of Ellen that be filling up the cemetery. This life is temporary, but the soul is eternal. Separate the real from the lie. Let me learn you're not strong, only aggressive, because the power ain't directed. That's why we are subjected to the will of the oppressive. Not free, we only license, not lie. We just exciting, because the captain owe the masters to what we write. Not compassionate, only polite. We well trained. Our sincerity rehearsed the stage. It's just a game. Not good, but we'll behave, because the camera survey. Most of the things that we think do the same. We chasing up the depth just to call ourselves brave. But every day, next man meet with the grave. I give a damn if any fan recall my legacy. I'm trying to live life in the sight of God's memory like that, y'all. Uh, a lot of people don't understand the true criterion of things. 
not strong, only aggressive, not free, we only license, not compassionate, only polite, not who the nicest, not good, but well behaved, chasing out the death so we could call ourselves brave, they're living like mental slaves, out of life thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Hiding like thieves in the night from life, illusions of oasis, making you look twice. Stop hiding, stop hiding, stop hiding, yo, fake. Stop hiding, stop hiding, cause ain't no hiding, fake. Stop hiding. Stop hiding, stop hiding your face. Stop hiding, stop hiding, cause ain't no hiding place. Said it 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 ain't no hiding place. We well trained. Black star. Black star keeps shining. Yo, yo, Take the black star line, ride on home, we take the black star line, ride on home, we take that black star line, ride on home, we take that black star line, ride on home, be real, be true. Are you drifting? Or can you jump aboard the rip raft and sail, 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 sail? The idea of writing about race. Or the absence of race. Um, Bill Moyers, I think, once asked you the question, can you imagine writing a novel that's not centered mm-hmm. about race? And you said, absolutely. Yes. Will you? That's what he asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, see, I answered the question he didn't pose. You know, um, Tolstoy writes about race. Yeah. All the time. Um, so does Zola. So does James Joyce. Now, if anybody can go up to an imaginary James Joyce and say, you write about race all the time. It's central in your novels. When are you going to write about what? Because you see, the person who asks that question doesn't understand that he is also, he or she is also raced. So to ask me when am I going to stop and or when, if I can, is to ask a question that in a, in a sense is its own answer. Yes, I can write about white people. White people can write about black people. Anything can happen in art. There are no boundaries there having to do it or having to prove that I can do it is what was embarrassing or insulting. In this book, I did. It was insulting that people, help me understand, what was insulting? The, the idea that you felt like you had to prove that you could write without... Po- yeah, the question was posed as though it were a desirable thing to do, right. to write about white people or to write not about race. That's what that means to right. me. Um, and that it was a difficult thing to do, a higher level of artistic endeavor, or it was more important, uh, and that I was still writing about marginal people, and why don't I come into the mainstream? You know, aren't you importing too much into the question? Maybe. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> but what could else could it be, Charlie? What, 
what does that mean? What does that question mean? You tell me if I'm making too much. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that you, you, I don't think it probably means, I didn't ask the question, so I don't think it probably means, but I don't think it had to do about you were marginalizing by not writing about. It only works if I can go to William Styron, well, maybe not William Styron because he has done it, um, somebody, major, white, and say, as a journalist. Can you write about black people? That's right. Can I say that? What kind of question is that to put to Ed Doctorow, who has done it, by the way? Sure. <laughs> but I mean, if I can say, when are you going to write about black people to a white writer, if that's a legitimate question to a white writer, then it is a legitimate question to me. I just don't think it is. You know, so you have the glove has to be pulled inside out. If it's, it's, in other words, it's not a literary question. It has nothing to do with the literary imagination. It's a sociological question that should not be put to, to me. It should, I couldn't ask that of any writer who was, you know, I wouldn't ask it of a black writer when you're going to write about white people. Now, maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me now or later if I've blown it up all out of proportion. I don't think so. I just don't know what the question means except what I think it means. You think it may just be a little question, a little curious, you know, small incidental question. When, when are you going to... Maybe I'm responding because I have had reviews in the past that have accused me of not writing about white people. I remember a review of Sula in which the reviewer said, this is all well and good, but one day she, meaning me, will have to face up to the real responsibilities and get mature and write about the real uh, confrontation for black people, which is white people. As though our lives have no meaning and no depth without the white gaze. And I've spent my entire writing life trying to make sure that the white gaze was not the dominant one in any of my books. And the people who helped me most arrive at that kind of language were African writers. Chenua Chebe, Bessie Head. Those writers who could assume the centrality of their race because they were Africans. And they didn't explain anything to white people. Those questions were incomprehensible to them. Those questions that I would have as a minority living in an all-white country like the United States. But when I read um, the poetry of Cesar or the poetry of Senghor or the novels particularly, Things Fall Apart was more important to me than anything. Only because there was a language, there was a posture, there were the parameters. I could step in now and I didn't have to be consumed by or be concerned by the white gaze. That was the liberation for me. It has nothing to do with who reads the books. Everyone, I hope, of any race, any gender, any country. But my sovereignty and my authority as a racialized person had to be struck immediately with the very first book.
And it was strange because in this country, many books, particularly then, uh, 40s, 50s, you could feel the address of the narrator over my shoulder talking to somebody else, talking to somebody white. I could tell because they were explaining things that they didn't have to explain if they were talking to me. Hmm. It was that. This is a, it's profound for me. So that I may be, you may be right, maybe I'm over-dramatizing the whole question, which was innocent enough, because the problem of being free to write the way you wish to without this other racialized gaze is a serious one for an African-American writer. Very serious. I think this is one of those times where what you just said, you gave and ennobled an answer, regardless of the significance. <laughs> this is one of those times where what you just said, you gave and ennobled an answer, regardless of the significance <laughs> well, that's of the question. Context of white supremacy. Justice, Gusty Renegade, in for another program, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date would be Friday, July 27th, 2012, so I have been told. We will be back tomorrow. Compensatory call-in. Uh, that would be Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Dial in. Always good to hear from non-white people, especially younger non-white people. Um, very much in the vein of Dr. Marimba Ani. Uh, I think we really should be focusing more of our energies on younger folks. So, you know some younger folks. See if you can get them to uh, participate when I say younger uh, ideally under 30, be great under 20, but ideally under 30, but always good to hear from non-white people, exchange views, system of racism, white supremacy. And as always, if you like the program, so what? If you do not like the program, so what? Replace the system of white supremacy with a system of justice. That is the objective. That's my man, Most Def, excuse me, formerly known as Most Def, Yasin Bey said in Thieves in the Night, uh, Thieves from Life, excuse me, uh, at the beginning of the program, not being concerned about legacies and all that good stuff. Not the objective. Study session on Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. At the beginning of the program, you heard uh, Talib Kweli. Uh, Yasin Bey, and then into a segment from Charlie Rose, suspected racist, his interview with Toni Morrison, which is quite interesting. There are a couple points uh, in there, even in the segment that you heard where he's saying that, oh, you're reading too much into the question. Some some white critic uh, asking her uh, when she's going to do a book that's not about race doesn't have race uh, as a main theme uh, and she's responding to that question by saying you wouldn't go to a white person uh, and ask them well you know when are you going to stop writing about white people and write something about black people 
Uh, and he said, oh, you you're Charlie Rose, the racist suspect. Oh, you're you. I think you're reading too much into that question, um, which he did not ask her, by the way. She was talking about a different critic, suspected racist. Anywho, uh, I also thought it was significant in that segment. She was talking about the black authors that influenced her work and her perspective uh, and some of the folks that she mentioned, uh, Achibe, uh, his things fall apart. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. Uh, Leopold Sadar Senghor, he's an African author. I don't know how many people are familiar with him. Uh, Ame Cesar, also an African author. I don't know how many people are familiar with him. Uh, those two, along with, uh, oh man, there are, I believe, two others. I believe Frantz Fanon might be in that group. But uh, they are credited with what is called negritude. This was a movement in uh, the 1960s, 1970s, where a lot of artists, um, black people were saying that they wanted to write from an African perspective. They didn't want to be concerned about what Morrison was calling the white gaze. Uh, They just wanted to do their own art, create from an African black perspective perspective and I find that all extremely ironic the cowbell would be broken because uh, Leopold Sadar Senghor married a white woman as did some of the other friends Fanon married a white woman just the irony never ends anywho we will get right to it Uh, this is the third installment bluest eye study study session Uh, I guess today we will be at around the halfway point in the book again I would encourage folks the audiobook fantastic it's always great to have but nothing beats sitting down with the book and being able to read it slowly at your own pace look back at sentences uh, look up words if there's a term that you don't quite understand nothing quite compares to reading the book so I would encourage folks get a copy check it out it is phenomenal you will enjoy it many times over Uh, you will never get tired and more things will jump out at you the more that you uh, touch Tony Morrison's phenomenal effort, The Bluest Eye. That said, we will get started. One of the things among many that I'm paying attention to, uh, are there any black male characters that do not function as terrorists towards the other black characters? That's something I'm on the lookout for. I'm not sure if that is the case. I'm going to be attentive. Uh, I know Mr. McTeer, that would be... uh, Claudia and Frida, their father, you don't really hear very much from him. You hear their mom talking, complaining about Piccola and other common, like you hear her voice. You don't really hear from their father. At least we have not thus far. Um, But just pay attention to that as we roll and other things. I'll give out the number once we conclude. You will unfortunately have to endure me reading one page because there was some damage to the cassette that they copied this from. And so there was uh, one page that uh, I'll have to read on both sides. But other than that, we will have our first segment. Once we're done, I'll hit the phone lines and look forward to hearing commentary from listeners on what their thoughts are. Tony Morrison's The Bluest Eye. With that said, we will begin segment number one. The Bluest Eye, cassette three. Spring. The first twigs are thin, green, and supple. They bend into a complete circle but will not break. Their delicate, showy hopefulness shooting from forsythia, 
and lilac bushes means only a change in whipping style. They beat us differently in the spring, instead of the dull pain of a winter strap. There were these new green switches that lost their sting long after the whipping was over. There was a nervous meanness in these long twigs that made us long for the steady stroke of a strap or the firm but honest slap of a hairbrush. Even now, spring for me is shot through with the remembered ache of switching, and for Scythia holds no cheer. Sunk in the grass of an empty lot on a spring Saturday, I split the stems of milkweed and thought about ants and peach pits and death and where the world went when I closed my eyes. I must have lain long in the grass, for the shadow that was in front of me when I left the house had disappeared when I went back. I entered the house as the house was bursting with an uneasy quiet. Then I heard my mother singing something about trains in Arkansas. She came in the back door with some folded yellow curtains, which she piled on the kitchen table. I sat down on the floor to listen to the song's story and noticed how strangely she was behaving. She still had her hat on, and her shoes were dusty, as though she had been walking in deep dirt. She put on some water to boil and then swept the porch. Then she hauled out the curtain stretcher, but instead of putting the damp curtains on it, she swept the porch again, all the time singing about trains in Arkansas. When she finished, I went to look for Frida. I found her upstairs lying on our bed, crying the tired, whimpering cry that follows the first wailings, mostly gasps and shudderings. I lay on the bed and looked at the tiny bunches of wild roses sprinkled over her dress. Many washings had faded their color and dimmed their outline. What happened, Frida? She lifted a swollen face from the crook of her arm. Shuddering still, she sat up, letting her thin legs dangle over the bedside. I knelt on the bed and picked up the hem of my dress to wipe her running nose. She never liked wiping noses on clothes, but this time she let me. It was the way Mama did with her apron. Did you get a whipping? She shook her head no. Then why are you crying? Because... Because what? Mr. Henry. What'd he do? Daddy beat him up. What for? The Maginot Line? Did he find out about the Maginot Line? No. Well, what then? Come on, Frida. How come I can't know? He picked at me. Picked at you? You mean like Soaphead Church? Sort of. He showed his privates at you? No. He touched me. Where? Here and here. She pointed to the tiny breast that, like two fallen acorns, scattered a few faded rose leaves on her dress. Really? How did it feel? Oh, Claudia. She sounded put out. I wasn't asking the right question. Didn't feel like anything. But wasn't it supposed to feel good, I mean? Frida sucked her teeth. What'd he do? Just walk up and pinch them? 
She sighed. First he said how pretty I was. Then he grabbed my arm and touched me. Where was Mama and Daddy? Over at the garden, weeding. What'd you say when he did it? Nothing. I just ran out the kitchen and went to the garden. Mama said we was never to cross the tracks by ourselves. Well, what would you do? Sit there and let him pinch you? I looked at my chest. I don't have nothing to pinch. I'm never going to have nothing. Oh, Claudia, you're jealous of everything. You want him to? No. I just get tired of having everything last. You do not. What about scarlet fever? You had that first. Yes, but it didn't last anyway. What happened at the garden? I told Mama, and she told Daddy. And we all come home, and he was gone. So we waited for him. And when Daddy saw him come up on the porch, he threw our old tricycle at his head and knocked him off the porch. Did he die? No. He got up and started singing, Nearer my God to thee. Then Mama hit him with the broom and told him to keep the Lord's name out of his mouth. But he wouldn't stop. And Daddy was cussing and everybody was screaming. Oh, shoot. I always miss stuff. And Mr. Buford came running out with his gun. And Mama told him to go somewhere and sit down. And Daddy said, no, give him the gun. And Mr. Buford did. And Mama screamed. And Mr. Henry shut up and started running. And Daddy shot at him, and Mr. Henry jumped out of his shoes and kept on running in his socks. Then Rosemary came out and said that Daddy was going to jail, and I hit her. Real hard? Real hard. Is that when Mama whipped you? She didn't whip me, I told you. Then why are you crying? Miss Dunyon came in after everybody was quiet, and Mama and Daddy was fussing about who let Mr. Henry in anyway, and she said that Mama should take me to the doctor because I might be ruined, and Mama started screaming all over again. At you? No, at Miss Dunya. But why were you crying? I don't want to be ruined. What's ruined? You know. Like the Maginot line, she's ruined. Mama said so. The tears came back. An image of Frida, big and fat, came to mind. Her thin legs swollen, her face surrounded by layers of rouged skin. I, too, began to feel tears. But Frida, you could exercise and not eat. She shrugged. Besides, what about China and Poland? They're ruined, too, aren't they? And they ain't fat. That's because they drink whiskey. Mama says whiskey ate them up. Okay, I will read my page from here. That's because they drink whiskey. Mama says whiskey ate them up. You could drink whiskey. Where would I get whiskey? We thought about this. Nobody would sell it to us. We had no money anyway. There was never any in our house. Who would have some? Pacola, I said. Her father's always drunk. She can get us some. You think so? Sure. Collie's always drunk. Let's go ask her. 
we don't have to tell her what for. Now? Sure, now. What do we tell Mama? Nothing. Let's just go out the back, one at a time, so she won't notice. Okay, you go first, Claudia. We opened the fence gate at the bottom of the backyard and ran down the alley. Pecola lived on the other side of Broadway. We had never been in her house, but we knew where it was. A two-story gray building that had been a store downstairs and had an apartment upstairs. Nobody answered our knock on the front door, so we walked around to the side door. As we approached, we heard radio music and looked to see where it came from. Above us was the second-story porch, lined with slanting, rotting rails, and sitting on the porch was the Maginot line herself. We stared up and automatically reached for the other's hand. A mountain of flesh. She lay rather than sat in a rocking chair. She had no shoes on, and each foot was poked between a railing tiny baby toes at the tip of puffy feet. Swollen ankles smoothed and tightened the skin. Massive legs like tree stumps parted wide at the knees, over which spread two roads of soft, flabby inner thigh that kissed each other deep in the shade of her dress and closed. We will go back to the audio. A dark brown root beer bottle like a burned limb, grew out of her dimpled hand. She looked at us, down through the porch railings, and emitted a low, long belch. Her eyes were as clean as rain, and again I remembered the waterfall. Neither of us could speak. Both of us imagined we were seeing what was to become of Frida. The Maginot line smiled at us. You all looking for somebody? I had to pull my tongue from the roof of my mouth to say, Piccola, she live here? Uh-huh, but she ain't here now. She gone to her mama's workplace to get the wash. Yes, ma'am. She coming back? Uh-huh. She got to hang up the clothes before the sun goes down. Oh, you can wait for her. Want to come up here and wait? We exchanged glances. I looked back up at the broad cinnamon roads that met in the shadow of her dress. Frida said, No, ma'am. Well, the Maginot line seemed interested in our problem. You can go to her mama's workplace, but it's way over by the lake. Where by the lake? That big white house with the wheelbarrow full of flowers. It was a house that we knew having admired the large white wheelbarrow tilted down on spoked wheels and planted with seasonal flowers. Ain't that too far for y'all to go walking? Frida scratched her knee. Why don't you wait for her? You can come up here. Want some pop? Those rain-soaked eyes lit up, and her smile was full, not like the pinched and holding back smile of other grown-ups. I moved to go up the stairs, but Frida said, No, ma'am, we ain't allowed. I was amazed at her courage and frightened of her sassiness. 
The smile of the Maginot line slipped. Ain't loud. No? Ain't loud to what? Go in your house? Is that right? The waterfalls were still. How come? My mama said so. My mama said you ruined. The waterfalls began to run again. She put the root beer bottle to her lips and drank it empty. With a graceful movement of the wrist, a gesture so quick and small we never really saw it, only remembered it afterward, she tossed the bottle over the rail at us. It split at our feet, and shards of brown glass dappled our legs before we could jump back. The Maginot line put a fat hand on one of the folds of her stomach and laughed. At first, just a deep humming with her mouth closed, then a larger, warmer sound, laughter at once beautiful and frightening. She let her head tilt sideways, closed her eyes, and shook her massive trunk, letting the laughter fall like a wash of red leaves all around us. Scraps and curls of the laughter followed us as we ran. Our breath gave out at the same time our legs did. After we rested against a tree, our heads on crossed arms, I said, Let's go home. Frida was still angry, fighting, she believed, for her life. No, we got to get it now. We can't go all the way to the lake. Yes, we can. Come on. Mama gonna get us. No, she ain't. Besides, she can't do nothing but whip us. That was true. She wouldn't kill us or laugh a terrible laugh at us or throw a bottle at us. We walked down tree-lined streets of soft gray houses leaning like tired ladies. The streets changed. Houses looked more sturdy. Their paint was newer, porch posts straighter, yards deeper. Then came brick houses, set well back from the street, fronted by yards edged in shrubbery, clipped into smooth cones and balls of velvet green. The lakefront houses were the loveliest. Garden furniture, ornaments, windows like shiny eyeglasses, and no sign of life. The backyards of these houses fell away in green slopes, down to a strip of sand, and then the blue Lake Erie, lapping all the way to Canada. The orange-patched sky of the steel mill section never reached this part of town. This sky was always blue. We reached Lakeshore Park, a city park laid out with rosebuds, fountains, bowling greens, picnic tables. It was empty now, but sweetly expectant of clean, white, well-behaved children and parents who would play there, above the lake in summer, before half-running, half-stumbling down the slope to the welcoming water. Black people were not allowed in the park, so it filled our dreams. Right before the entrance of the park was a large white house with a wheelbarrow full of flowers. Short crocus blades sheathed the purple and white hearts that so wished to be first they endured the chill and rain of early spring. The walkway was flagged in calculated disorder, hiding the cunning symmetry. Only fear of discovery and the knowledge that we did not belong kept us from loitering. We circled the proud house and went to the back. There, on the tiny railed stoop, sat Piccola, in a light red sweater and blue cotton dress. A little wagon was parked near her. 
She seemed glad to see us. Hi. Hi. What you all doing here? She was smiling, and since it was a rare thing to see on her, I was surprised at the pleasure it gave me. We're looking for you. Who told you I was here? The Maginot Line. Who's that? That big fat lady. She lives over you. Oh, you mean Miss Marie. Her name is Miss Marie. Well, everybody calls her the Maginot Line. Ain't you scared? Scared of what? The Maginot Line. Picola looked genuinely puzzled. What for? Your mama let you go in her house and eat out of her plates? She don't know I go. Miss Marie is nice. They all nice. Oh, yeah, I said. She tried to kill us. Who, Miss Marie? She don't bother nobody. Then how come your mama don't let you go in her house if she's so nice? I don't know. She says she's bad, but they ain't bad. They give me stuff all the time. What stuff? Oh, lots of stuff. Pretty dresses and shoes. I got more shoes than I can wear. And jewelry and candy and money. They take me to the movies and once we went to the carnival. China. Gonna take me to Cleveland to see the square. And Poland gonna take me to Chicago to see the loop. We're going everywhere together. You lying. You don't have no pretty dresses. I do, too. Oh, come on, Piccola. What you telling us all that junk for? Frida asked. It ain't junk. Piccola stood up, ready to defend her words, when the door opened. Mrs. Breedlove stuck her head out the door and said, What's going on out here? Piccola, who are these children? That's Frida and Claudia, Mrs. Breedlove. Whose girls are you? She came all the way out on the stoop. She looked nicer than I had ever seen her, in her white uniform and her hair in a small pompadour. Mrs. McTeer's girls, ma'am. Oh, yeah. Live over on 21st Street. Yes, ma'am. What are you doing way over here? Just walking. We came to see Picola. Well, you better get on back. You can walk with Picola. Come on in here while I get the wash. We stepped into the kitchen, a large, spacious room. Mrs. Breedlove's skin glowed like taffeta in the reflection of white porcelain, white woodwork, polished cabinets, and brilliant copperware. Odors of meat, vegetables, and something freshly baked mixed with the scent of Fell's naphtha. I'm going to get the wash. You all stand stock still right there and don't mess up nothing. She disappeared behind a white swinging door, and we could hear the uneven flap of her footsteps as she descended into the basement. Another door opened, and in walked a little girl, smaller and younger than all of us. She wore a pink sunback dress and pink fluffy bedroom slippers with two bunny ears pointing up from the tips. Her hair was corn yellow and bound in a thick ribbon. When she saw us, fear danced across her face for a second. She looked anxiously around the kitchen. Where's Polly? she asked. 
The familiar violence rose in me, her calling Mrs. Breedlove Polly, when even Picola called her mother Mrs. Breedlove, seemed reason enough to scratch her. She's downstairs, I said. Polly? She called. Look, Frida whispered. Look at that. On the counter near the stove, in a silvery pan, was a deep-dish berry cobbler, the purple juice bursting here and there through crust. We moved closer. It's still hot, Frida said. Picola stretched her hand to touch the pan lightly to see if it was hot. Polly, come here, the little girl called again. It may have been nervousness, awkwardness, but the pan tilted onto Picola's fingers and fell to the floor, splattering blackish blueberries everywhere. Most of the juice splashed on Picola's legs, and the burn must have been painful, for she cried out and began hopping about just as Mrs. Breedlove entered with a tightly packed laundry bag. In one gallop, she was on Picola, and with the back of her hand knocked her to the floor. Picola slid in the pie juice, one leg folding under her. Mrs. Breedlove yanked her up by the arm, slapped her again, and in a voice thin with anger, abused Picola directly and Frida and me by implication. Crazy fool, my floor mess. Look what you work. Get on out. Now that crazy, my floor, my floor, my floor. Her words were hotter and darker than the smoking berries, and we backed away in dread. The little girl in pink started to cry. Mrs. Breedlove turned to her. Hush, baby, hush. Come here. Oh, Lord, look at your dress. Don't cry no more. Polly will change it. She went to the sink and turned tap water on a fresh towel. Over her shoulder, she spat out words to us like rotten pieces of apple. Pick up that wash and get on out of here so I can get this mess cleaned up. Picola picked up the laundry bag, heavy with wet clothes, and we stepped hurriedly out the door. As Picola put the laundry bag in the wagon, we could hear Mrs. Breedlove hushing and soothing the tears of the little pink and yellow girl. Were they, Polly? Don't worry now, baby. You gonna make another pie? Of course I will. Who were they, Polly? Hush. Don't worry none, she whispered. And the honey in her words complimented the sundown spilling on the lake. See, Mother. Mother is very nice. Mother, will you play with Jane? Mother laughs. Laugh, Mother. Laugh. Laugh. The easiest thing to do would be to build a case out of her foot. That is what she herself did. But to find out the truth about how dreams die, one should never take the word of the dreamer. The end of her lovely beginning was probably the cavity in one of her front teeth. She preferred, however, to think always of her foot. Although she was the ninth of eleven children, and lived on a ridge of red Alabama clay seven miles from the nearest road, the complete indifference with which a rusty nail was met when it punched clear through her foot during her second year of life saved Pauline Williams from total anonymity. The wound left her with a crooked, archless foot that flopped when she walked, not a limp that would have eventually twisted her spine, but a way of lifting the bad foot 
as though she were extracting it from little whirlpools that threatened to pull it under. Slight as it was, the deformity explained for her many things that would have been otherwise incomprehensible. Why she alone of all the children had no nickname? Why there were no funny jokes and anecdotes about funny things she had done? Why no one ever remarked on her food preferences? No saving of the wing or neck for her. No cooking of the peas in a separate pot without rice because she didn't like rice. Why nobody teased her? Why she never felt at home anywhere, or that she belonged any place. Her general feeling of separateness and unworthiness she blamed on her foot. Restricted as a child to this cocoon of her family's spinning, she cultivated quiet and private pleasures. She liked, most of all, to arrange things, to line things up in rows, jars on shelves at canning, peach pits on the steps. Sticks, stones, leaves, and the members of her family let these arrangements be. When by some accident somebody scattered her rows, they always stopped to retrieve them for her, and she was never angry, for it gave her a chance to rearrange them again. Whatever portable plurality she found, she organized into neat lines, according to their size, shape, or gradations of color. Just as she would never align a pine needle with the leaf of a cottonwood tree. She would never put the jars of tomatoes next to the green beans. During all of her four years of going to school, she was enchanted by numbers and depressed by words. She missed, without knowing what she missed, paints and crayons. Near the beginning of World War I, the Williamses discovered, from returning neighbors and kin, the possibility of living better in another place, in shifts, lots, batches, mixed in with other families, they migrated in six months and four journeys to Kentucky, where there were mines and millwork. When all us left from down home and was waiting down by the depot for the truck, it was nighttime. June bugs were shooting everywhere. They lighted up a tree leaf and I seen a streak of green every now and again. That was the last time I seen real June bugs. These things up here ain't June bugs. They's something else. Folks here call them fireflies. Down home, they was different. But I recollect that streak of green. I recollect it well. In Kentucky, they lived in a real town. Ten to fifteen houses on a single street, with water piped right into the kitchen. Ada and Fowler Williams found a five-room frame house for their family. The yard was bound by a once-white fence against which Pauline's mother planted flowers and within which they kept a few chickens. Some of her brothers joined the army. One sister died, and two got married, increasing the living space and giving the entire Kentucky venture a feel of luxury. The relocation was especially comfortable to Pauline, who was old enough to leave school. Mrs. Williams got a job cleaning and cooking for a white minister on the other side of town, and Pauline, now the oldest girl at home, took over the care of the house. She kept the fence in repair, pulling the pointed stakes erect, securing them with bits of wire, collected eggs, swept, cooked, washed, and minded the two younger children, 
a pair of twins called Chicken and Pie, who were still in school. She was not only good at housekeeping, she enjoyed it. After her parents left for work and the other children were at school or in mines, the house was quiet. The stillness and isolation both calmed and energized her. She could arrange and clean without interruption until two o'clock, when Chicken and Pie came home. When the war ended and the twins were ten years old, they too left school to work. Pauline was fifteen, still keeping house, but with less enthusiasm. Fantasies about men and love and touching were drawing her mind and hands away from her work. Changes in weather began to affect her, as did certain sights and sounds. These feelings translated themselves to her in extreme melancholy. She thought of the death of newborn things, lonely roads, and strangers who appear out of nowhere simply to hold one's hand, woods in which the sun was always setting. In church especially did these dreams grow. The songs caressed her, and while she tried to hold her mind on the wages of sin, her body trembled for redemption, salvation, a mysterious rebirth that would simply happen with no effort on her part. In none of her fantasies was she ever aggressive. She was usually idling by the river bank or gathering berries in a field when a someone appeared with gentle and penetrating eyes who, with no exchange of words, understood, and before whose glance her foot straightened and her eyes dropped. The someone had no face, no form, no voice, no odor. He was a simple presence an all-embracing tenderness with strength and a promise of rest. It did not matter that she had no idea of what to do or say to the presence. After the wordless knowing and the soundless touching, her dreams disintegrated. But the presence would know what to do. She had only to lay her head on his chest, and he would lead her away to the sea, to the city, to the woods, forever. There was a woman named Ivy who seemed to hold in her mouth all the sounds of Pauline's soul. Standing a little apart from the choir, Ivy sang the dark sweetness that Pauline could not name. She sang the death-defying death that Pauline yearned for. She sang of the stranger who knew. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storms, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me on when my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near when my life is almost gone. Hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand, lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me on.
Thus it was that when the stranger, the someone, did appear out of nowhere, Pauline was grateful but not surprised. He came, strutting right out of a Kentucky sun on the hottest day of the year. He came big, he came strong. He came with yellow eyes, flaring nostrils, and he came with his own music. Pauline was leaning idly on the fence, her arms resting on the cross rail between the pickets. She had just put down some biscuit dough and was cleaning the flour from under her nails. Behind her, at some distance, she heard whistling. One of those rapid, high-note riffs that black boys make up as they go while sweeping, shoveling, or just walking along. A kind of city street music where laughter belies anxiety and joy is as short and straight as the blade of a pocket knife. She listened carefully to the music and let it pull her lips into a smile. The whistling got louder, and still she did not turn around, for she wanted it to last. While smiling to herself and holding fast to the break in somber thoughts, she felt something tickling her foot. She laughed aloud and turned to see. The whistler was bending down, tickling her broken foot and kissing her leg. She could not stop her laughter, not until he looked up at her, and she saw the Kentucky sun drenching the yellow, heavy-lidded eyes of Charlie Breedlove. When I first seed Charlie, I want you to know it was like all the bits of color from that time down home when all us children went berry-picking after a funeral and I put some in the pocket of my Sunday dress, and they smashed up and stained my hips. My whole dress was messed with purple, and it never did wash out. Not the dress, nor me. I could feel that purple deep inside me, and that lemonade Mama used to make when Pap came in out the fields. It'd be cool and yellowish, with seeds floating near the bottom and that streak of green them June bugs made on the trees the night we left from down home, all them colors within me, just sitting there. So when Charlie come up and tickled my foot, it was like them berries that lemonade them streaks of green the June bugs made all come together. Charlie was thin then, with real light eyes. He used to whistle, and when I heard him, shivers come on my skin. This ends side one of cassette three. Please turn the cassette over and start side two at the same point. Context of white supremacy. I was thinking that was so fortunate that the damaged part of the tape was not the portion with the singing. Gusty Renegade, not noted for his singing voice. The number to dial in is 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Uh, star 6. If you have questions, uh, one more time, the number is 760-569-7676. And the code is 564943-POUND. Uh, star 6, if you have questions, uh, definitely looking forward to hearing thoughts 
on our most recent segment of the bluest eye I will uh, check the phone line see if folks oh and I guess for the folks that are on the talk shoe line star 8 if you dial the talk shoe line star 8 let's see was reminded of uh, nothing but a man I was talking about that earlier this week not on the program but uh, the film nothing but a man Ivan Dixon Abby Lincoln the segment that we just heard right there where Mrs. Bree Love where she's talking about when uh, she and Charlie first met their relationship it's reminding me of nothing but a man very difficult film to watch powerful but a very difficult film to watch at least for me uh, I think after all these years I got it correct uh, Be more. your line should be open Five four zero seven. Are you there? Five four zero seven. Hello. Can can I be heard? Oh, okay. Yeah, we can hear you. I was right. Okay. Yes, it'll be more. Peace, Gus, and all the other listeners. Um, I did take a few notes. I was. I guess the thing that stuck out initially to me is how the girls were talk. Um, were talking about alcohol. I think they said more specifically whiskey. Um, solving the problem of being ruined. Um, that stood out to me because. I mean, under the system of white supremacy, um, a lot of our people, a lot of non-white people use alcoholism as a coping, uh, alcoholism as a coping mechanism, so that really stuck out to me, the fact that they thought that whiskey could solve the problem of being ruined. Um, what else did I um, Oh, and um, another note that I wrote is the whole adoration to the little white girl. Um, I thought about the help when the um, the, the non-white children dropped the pie or whatever and the little white girl started to cry, here she is scolding the black children, um, of course, in front of the little white girl, but talking all sweet and all that to the little white girl. So those two things stuck out. Um, and the last thing that stuck out to me was the fact that they were talking about how Mrs. Breedlove, um, Polly, how she was classifying and separating things and not mixing them. I think she was talk- they were talking about vegetables, how she didn't mix the green beans. I'm going to just say co- with the corn. It wasn't corn, but that really stuck out to me as well. And that's all for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the scene with the... The scene with the pie is... Uh, quite difficult. She writes... Uh, Toni Morrison's writing is so vivid. I feel like I'm watching this, but... Uh, that scene is pretty difficult to read, dash, listen to. Um, the help, absolutely. I feel like white people have done so many, uh, the plantation fiction term I use, they've done so many books, movies, plays, uh, where I feel like I've seen that scene before. Um, and I mean, it's on so many levels where it's not just. Miss Breedlove is scalding the children like she's beating her own child um, and the other children that are there they're not her children but they feel you know like they're being terrorized and indicted in this as well but beating her own child and kicking her out to go and pamper this this white child um, and, I mean just on so many levels like where throughout the whole book Pacola does not call her mom mother she doesn't have any of those 
parental titles. Uh, she calls her Miss Breedlove. Uh, she doesn't call her dad, you know, dad or daddy or any of those, you know, fatherly titles. Um, it's just very difficult scene. Um, and again, cannot be parents. Black people do not qualify as husbands, fathers, mothers under the system of whites. Nothing but a man. Nothing but a man. I don't know if folks have seen that film, but it reminds me a lot of of nothing but a man. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, to touch more on the title, that, that stuck out as well. I actually put a note about that. How the little white girl um, called her, you know, by her first name instead of, you know, of course, no respect for the black woman, calling her by her first name. And they that stuck out to the children as well. They talked about that. And the fact that um, possession stuck out as well because when the pie hit the floor, she was like, my floor. And, of course, we all know she doesn't own it. It's not her floor. It's a house she's cleaning. Um, and I forgot something else that stuck out. Just this whole talk of whiteness. Um, they were saying the clean, white, well-behaved children as they were going from the black neighborhoods to the white neighborhoods and how the scenery changed and how everything looked so nice. And even Miss Breedlove, they were saying how... She looked, she looked nicer than they'd ever seen her. She had on her white uniform. Um, her skin glowed um, against the white porcelain and white woodwork and all this whiteness, all this talk of whiteness. That stuck out as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Triumph 3000, your line is open as well. It uh, When they were given the description, when they went to the other side of town Curtis Mayfield uh, when they get to the other side of the town even the sky is bluer the entire uh, universe has changed uh, once you get to where there are no black people uh, Triumph 3000 your line is open as well Hey Gus and uh, the listeners the uh, callers as well um, I think to, to build on what y'all were talking about um it stuck out in my mind when the kids were walking past the park and, you know, they see white people enjoying themselves and they like, you know, they couldn't go to the park, you know, so it's, it's something that they dreamt about. And, um, it just made me think about, um, modern day. I think it's a little more subconscious, but all of the things that I, I pass by or that I see, or certain types of environments that we come across that it's like black people can't go into there. Not that we can't go, but it's just like, um, it's like a separation of some sort, like a separation of, of, of culture or acceptance that still is, um, relevant to this day. Like I remember being, um, I think when I was in Cancun, they have this like strip of all of these stores. Like you got the Gucci's and the, um, you know, real high end crazy stores that I would never go into because it's not, it's not even in my realm. But I just remember passing by that whole area and seeing the hordes of white people, you know, yucking it up, just being in that area. But it's, it's not that we couldn't go, but it's, but it was still kind of off limits. So when I heard that part of the book, it made me, it just made me rem- reminisce or just think about all of the places to where I feel like black people are still kind of like on the outside looking in of something that white people can enjoy. And it's in our dreams. Like it's, that was, that was deep. Yeah. 
Um, and and what stuck out to me, I guess, at the beginning of the segment is the it's like a a countering going on with the parents. The first what the story made me think about is that uh I I, I forget I don't know if it's someone you had on the show, but he was talking about um some ducks or some geese or something where he had to save his daughter from these geese because all of the geese had like posseed up to come and uh defend a baby goose or something. Um I'm I I forget the story exactly, but um the situation with the guy who had touched uh Frida's breast, um you have a situation to where the parents come, both parents come you know, I think a neighbor is kind of like chiming in. Everybody is coming to the defense, you know, of this horrible thing that has happened. So I, I thought about that, like, hmm, that's, in, that's an interesting element. But then I thought about how that's kind of countered because they have this defense. They come together in defense, but they leave the children through lack of communication. They, 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 they do damage to the children by not communicating what all of the defense and everything is about. So now you have your ch your child, they in the room discussing, you know, getting whiskey. Um, they're not clear exactly on what being ruined means. Like, it's just, you like, you know, I thought it was a positive thing that they came together to do that, but then I feel like it's countered by, you know, the lack of communication and the lack of you know, fully explaining to these children what took place. I thought that that was, that was interesting. Eric Grimes, uh, Why Our Children Hate Us, the story uh, when he was taking his children to the park and the uh, ducks or geese or whatever it was, some uh, bird life form was going to... Uh, quack and, and peck at his child and he went to defend and the uh, the ducks uh, Voltron effect, they uh, coordinated their counterattack uh, against the two of them, I think he kicked one of the ducks but yeah, that's Eric Grimes uh, in his book uh, co-author uh, of uh, Why Our Children Hate Us, uh, he was a guest on the program last April um, Bruce Fine good to hear from you as well, your line is open also Hi, Gus. Uh, good evening, everyone. I can't remember which one of the ladies mentioned um, the part with uh, Toni Morrison mentioned the going into the white neighborhoods, the, the sky is even bluer and blah, blah, blah. When that was mentioned, uh, my mind went to um, all of the many stories of white people talking about how, in fact, their... Uh, the areas in which they live is uh, so polluted uh, that they're seeing high rates of cancer, skin cancer. And, you know, it's just this illusion that those girls had or even us today have that, uh, we today have that um, everything with white people is uh, A-OK, -okay, is, uh, is good, uh, their skies aren't bluer. They are greatly polluted, and they will tell you so. So I just wanted to bring up, up that, uh, bring up that point that it, it's an illusion.
There's a bit of uh, foreshadowing. Uh, excellent point as well. Definitely a, an illusion. Um, powerful illusion, but an illusion nonetheless. Um, but a bit of foreshadowing uh, at the very beginning of our segment from today when they, when uh, Frida and Claudia, when they're talking about uh, what happened, Frida's trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, she says... Well, uh, who touched you? Was it so or how did he touch you? How did Mr. Henry touch you? Was it like Soaphead Church? And I don't think we've got to that character yet. Uh, so you already get some understanding that the children are familiar and that they know someone who I guess is known for molesting young children, uh, which is important. Uh, it was a little quick, but like I said, a little bit of foreshadowing. We will hear more about Soaphead Church. I don't know if it'll come up today or down the road, but just keep that in the back of your head that they, the children are already demonstrating that they have knowledge that there are some non-white people, some black people in their area that they are familiar with who are apparently known for molesting children. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, and and for be more, I I uh, picked that up too about um, them saying that Mrs. Bree Love uh, looked better than they had ever seen her before uh, because she was wearing her uh, her white uniform and the, the porcelain and all of that. So I definitely picked up on how that whiteness. Uh, was to be synonymous with uh, bright, uh, a great feeling, looking good, beautiful, and, and, and all of that. So I picked up on that as well. I picked up on how they, when they thought of where to go get the whiskey, I mean, Pecola's that just popped out, like, He's always drunk. If we need whiskey, that is where we need to go. That's that was interesting. I mean, it makes me feel for um, Pacola because I, I mean, just your your parents being known in your neighborhood like that, like um, amongst other children, like that's what your your dad is known for. Is um, that's deep. Yeah, I, I picked up on that as well. And thinking about um, the the statement that Gus made at the beginning of the program about um, the, how the males are portrayed uh, in in the um, in the book, uh, and I, my mind when they said that his that her father is a drunk and and the guy um, who touches them. I was thinking about what Gus said. A lot of, um, basically all of the men are, woof, you know, not really portray that, in, you know, in a good light. If they aren't molesting, they're almost raping or, or drunks, you know, definitely stuck out. 
And I remember the hookers saying that they hate all men. They are uh, mm -hmm. weak and inadequate. Speaking of the uh, hookers, what do you all make of... It seems like Pacola, she has terrible... Everybody abuses her, it seems like, in the book, except these these hookers. Um the pro I'll say prostitutes. These prostitutes, they seem that they uh, are nice to her. They give her things, and it seems like they're the only sort of caring relationship that she has with anyone in the book, where she she feels safe around them, and they're not going to mistreat her. Uh, and everybody else in the book looks down on them. Uh, even the children, uh, they have named this one prostitute. They they reference her, and it seems other people in the town do too. The Maginot Line. And Pacola is like, well, that's not her name. Uh, that's that's Miss Marie. Why are you all calling her the Maginot Line? And they're like, that's what everybody else calls her. We we don't call her Miss Marie. We're we're calling her uh, the Maginot Line. What do you all What do you all make of the name and even the relationship between these prostitutes and Pacola? I think I think it's interesting that um, earlier in the book. Toni Morrison, she kind of goes through when she, when she's kind of outlining the uh, the characters of the prostitutes. It's I feel like it was a tone in there to where they're prostitutes, but at the same time it was kind of uh, a tone to where it was something um, a little bit endearing. Uh, I don't know if endearing is the right word, but how she was saying like they're not these are not people who, you know, they didn't, they're not prostitutes because of this or prostitutes because of that. I think the term that she uses is that they were whores and whores clothing. It's, it's almost like um, they're, they're portrayed as keeping it real almost like in all, you know, in all of the chaos and all of the facade, these are people who have a clear understanding of what it is uh they're not ashamed of what they've become and what it's made them into. So I think that it's it's it was sort of like a tone in the book that kind of made them uh positive I don't know, something positive about the characters, if that makes sense. So in correlation with how they interact with Pacola, it I mean, to me it kind of fits I, I think she's trying to say something about how judgmental people are. And the fact that these people right here, they're, I don't, I don't think that they're judging Pacola because like out of being judged or out of, I don't know, something about their, their insight being real. So it makes them relate to Pacola and be nice to her, like puts them on the same level, if that makes sense. I don't know. I look at it just as just another um, case where Pacola, the the character who is uh, constantly basically being abused at every level, and um, and here you have these ladies who, um, from society's standpoint, are considered low, if you will. So here now you have Pacola who is abused, who's constantly, and, and like I said, when we, when we first started listening to it, I, I think her name may be um, 
uh, a play on Coca-Cola and Pepsi, dark drinks, meaning dark. And I just I think her finding um, a, a friendship or a, close, a closeness with the prostitutes is just uh, like a metaphor for um, blackness being low, being, um, uh, how can I say, um, just pushed aside in society. That, that's what I think it represents if that makes sense. <laughs> I agree. I just think Tacola, she has someone to relate to um, just because of all the things she's endured and things like that. Um, she just has somebody to relate to as far as the prostitutes. I, I think it's irony in the fact that out of all the, you know, the, these are the people that society look at as bad or you know the outcast but you know in this judgmental uh setting they they are the most compassionate so maybe that's what i was trying to communicate it's sort of like this just a position with these characters to where this is the way that they're judged and the way that they're viewed but as far as the the character pacola is concerned like they they i mean they have the most compassion towards her i think that's it yeah. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I wasn't going to really say much, but I love the way that Toni Morrison describes the characters because even though we know that they're the marginal line or Miss Murray, whatever you want to call her, even though we know that she's a prostitute and she's obese and things like that, the way that Toni Morrison describes her, it's like, um, for lack of better words, it, it doesn't make it seem that bad. Like, the way she uses uh, similes and metaphors to describe her, uh, the fact that her thighs were kissing and stuff like that, like, I don't know. It's it just, I don't know. The way she describes her doesn't make it seem that bad. I don't, I don't and, really know the words she used. And, and, and that's an, an additional, and, I, and I'm speaking simply from the standpoint of how society views black people how society views uh, prostitutes, how society views obese people. So not only are they uh, prostitutes, but the one, uh, Miss Marie, who gives her this and gives her that, is an obese lady. So again, here, here you have all of these negative elements um, from societal, from a societal standpoint. I, I'm not speaking of how they interact with her, but I'm speaking um, how society views black people, how society views prostitutes, how society views uh, obese people, and it's all negative. And Tony brings all of this together, all all of these uh, elements together, and um, I think it's it's metaphor, metaphoric, um, you know, just how society views black people, how black is viewed, uh, melanated people are viewed. Just paying attention. Oh, my bad. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, This is just paying attention to uh, names 
Uh, I would say pretty much anytime you read Toni Morrison, you should probably do this anytime you read any books, novels, but especially Toni Morrison, I would say pay attention to names just in hearing interviews, researching for the book to do these sessions. Uh, again, Toni Morrison, Toni is not her name. That's not the name her parents gave her when she was born. Uh, her name was Chloe, which is interesting because there's a character in this book named Kali. But anyway, uh, her name that her parents gave her was Chloe, but she said that people didn't pronounce her name correctly. They were calling her everything but Chloe. So she changed it when she went to college. I think that's significant for black people and for her as a writer. Uh, in this book, they're not calling Miss Marie, Miss Marie. They're calling her the Maginot line. Uh, Ma the M in Maginot and the L in Maginot, is, uh, the L in Maginot line is capitalized. I didn't really know what that meant. Didn't have any significance for me. I decided just now to check and look, and that does mean something. This book uh, is supposed to be set during uh, 1940s, which would be World War II. Uh, Maginot line. I'm reading. Uh, this is a uh, dictionary from my Mac. It's uh, a line of defensive fortifications constructed by the French along their eastern border, extending from Switzerland to Luxembourg between 1929 and 1936. In World War II, although the defenses held, the Germans outflanked them going through Belgium to conquer France. That's number one. This has come on to take on significance on its own. Next definition as a noun, Maginot line, an impressive but often ineffectual means of protection or defense. I'll read that again slowly. Maginolan, an impressive but often ineffectual means of protection or defense. They give an example using this in a sentence. How I use the second definition, how you use that in a sentence. I think I got it enough where I can give my own definition. Affirmative action is a Maginolan against white supremacy in the workplace ineffectual wow. means of protection now that is fascinating getting that extra at least for me getting that extra meaning of the term and why they're calling uh, Miss Marie Maginot line fascinating I'll mute there and I was, I was going to say about her that out of the women characters that have been introduced so far uh, I feel like um She's portrayed as one of the only adult women who are kind of like um, content with themselves. I don't want to say happy with themselves, but it, it, it seems like the other women are kind of in other places wishing that they could be other things or like uh, the Frida's mom. You know, she's like, I, you know, she goes on this whole rant about being in the poorhouse and she's not supposed to be in a poorhouse. And uh, then you have. Pacola's mom who you know is living this double life that I think that she prefers the other life that she lives serving the white people a little more to hers it's like uh, Miss Marie is kind of Miss Marie and the people that uh, she's surrounded by they kind of see, seem comfortable in their own skin and uh, with what they're living Something about the story makes me feel that way about them. So I think that uh, her, that is interesting, her, that being the definition of that word. So now I don't know if she's being called that because this is a persona 
that she's giving off or if that's real about her now. And something else that's interesting is that Pecola, she uh, kept arguing that her name is Ms. is Miss Marie, and the other girls kept insisting that they would not call her Miss Marie, but that they would call her uh, what is it, Magelo Magelo Line? How do you pronounce it, guys? <laughs> Magino Line, Magino Ma- Line, Magino Line. They that, and it makes me um, think about. Uh, Mr. Fuller, <laughs> uh, when he says we are males and females and not men and women. And I know a lot of black people, when you say that, they will insist, I am a man, I am a woman. Uh, you know, we're like, no, you, no, you're not. You know, and, and like Gus was saying, we attempt to be mothers, fathers, husbands, and wives. And um, so I just thought that was interesting that they were insisting that they would not call her Miss Marie. Um, thank you for that definition, Gus. Um, I guess I can touch back on what I was initially saying, how uh, the way that Toni Morrison was, was describing her, I couldn't find better words. Um, it made it not seem so bad. Like, yes, she's black in this story where blacks are looked at, well, still, blacks are looked at negatively. Um, she's obese and she's a prostitute, but the way she was describing her, again, it didn't seem so bad. They they talked about her legs being like tree stumps, which to me is like strength, and just everything about her still seemed like, even though the definition says ineffective or what have you, it still made it seem like it wasn't so bad that she was still in this bad predicament or what have you. I think um, that's the, the, the tree stump uh, description of, of her legs. If I'm not mistaken, I think um, that's how uh, racists would, re- would refer to black women, whether fat or, or not, would refer to our legs as tree stumps. I think even Michelle Obama, they refer to her legs as tree stumps. And and um and they weren't saying it in a positive light. It was a um it was an insult. Um, you know, with uh Michelle and First Lady Obama and other black women. As if that we are not uh feminine. Only the the white woman is, is feminine. The symmetry, that's one thing I kind of pay attention to uh, with good writers. There tends to be a symmetry to the writing. Um, And when I say symmetry, just meaning you will see a consistency. Um, The way the book starts at, you'll see, wow, I see how this matches up to where the book ends at. Uh, And I see that symmetry in Morrison's work. Uh, That definition Uh, an impressive but often ineffectual means of protection or defense you all will hear that come up it'll be it'll be stated differently but you'll hear that stated a lot more eloquently at the end of the book 
probably not until two weeks down the road. Um, but you've already kind of heard it. I keep playing that song at the beginning, Thieves in the Night, because they've taken what I think is probably one of the most profound passages, paragraphs I've ever read, and they just made it the hook, the refrain for their song. Uh, but the sentence that it's it begins with is, and fantasy it was, for we were not strong, we were aggressive. I'm just leaving it right there. Not strong, only aggressive. And I, she's talking about the whole black people in the town. And I think you could apply it to black people under white supremacy worldwide. Not strong, only aggressive. There's a major difference between the two. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the the book is full of um, ineffective lines of defense. I think the majority of the characters are displaying uh, ineffective defense mechanisms uh, across the board. This is so good. <laughs> anything uh, religion, a theory of people activity, anything uh, with regards to religion pop out to anyone? Hmm. Mr. Henry starts singing uh, Nearer Thy God to Me when they find out he's been molesting their child and... Uh, Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Miss uh, Miss McTeer, she's. I guess you got quite a few characters there singing different hymns and what have you uh, throughout the book. I think religion right now is representing one of those ineffective <laughs> defense mechanisms. <laughs> I mean, something that people are calling on and leaning on. Um, but it's not it's not a, it's not effective uh with the um guy singing the hymn after finding out he's a molester is that could that be like him um like how we are we are taught love love thy enemy doesn't matter what they're doing to you and that was his his protection he could always instead of getting instead of them sending him to jail or beating him up or you know taking matters into their hands for harming their child if i you know come out with a, a, a hymn that a cause you to bring your guard down, that'll cause you to forgive me, that'll, that'll cause you to walk away and, and let the Lord handle it. So that, that's probably why he broke out into that hymn, because he knows the power that it has over black people where, where religion is concerned. Wow, a weapon. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> He, it wasn't so much him singing to the Lord. It was putting them at bay. It was like kryptonite for them, <laughs> possibly. In that context, 
uh, religion was definitely a Maginot line in that context because uh, Miss McTearson uh, hit him with a broom immediately and demanded that, oh, he okay. bring, <laughs> that he not bring the Lord's name. <laughs> so it was very ineffective right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was trying. <laughs> he was hoping. I think that's an interesting dynamic that she brought up, though, because uh, r- religion being used as a weapon like that is, I mean, I think it's still very uh, relevant uh, today. And I think it's interesting that um, a lot of times modern day, uh, the pedophiles and Craig, you know, it's a lot of people who are pedophiles and abusing children sexually who are hiding behind being deacons and ministers and church members and choir directors. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that that's a very, that's, I I think it's a a interesting correlation of what's even taking place in modern day. Mm -hmm. And and maybe it is, maybe the religion uh, is being used as um, something to disarm people. Uh, like when Eddie Long, you know, he got all of these um, accusations and the people in the church were like defending him and ready to go to battle for him and not wanting to oust him. Like, I mean, I think that it can be used to really disarm people psychologically. So maybe that's, um, I mean, based on what I've seen so far, the type of writer that Toni Morrison is, I think that she's intelligent like that to where I think that is what she's trying to communicate by him breaking out into that song. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't remember the uh, the black male's name who was run over by the 19-year-old racist in his pickup truck. And um, not too long, I think a couple of months ago, he was sentenced. And the victim's sister, I, it, I think it was something to do about should he be given the death penalty versus life or something like that. And I think the victim's sister, she gave a, a, a statement in court saying that she was against giving uh, against him getting the death penalty, and she invoked uh, Christianity and forgiveness and and all of that. So she she, if I'm remembering correctly, she invoked uh, religion as her reason for not wanting this murderer, this racist murderer of her brother to um, be sentenced to death. James Craig Anderson, uh, the victim. Uh, The caller from a block number, your line should be open as well. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to bring up um, the point where the character has to arrange everything in order and some things can't be next to other things and everything must be in order. And it made me think about compulsive behavior and looking at, and you'll see it in many groups of people around the world, but specifically non-white people, especially black people, and the need to have control because we are out of control. 
and I, I, I didn't hear the, um, I didn't join the program at the very beginning. I came in close to when um, the woman is singing, but that really stuck out in my mind because I see and I know people who have extremely highly imbalanced compulsive behavior and when you look at them they're out of control most of us that I know of most black people have something um, and it, 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 it goes the extreme from one end to the other but they have something that they must control they need to control their children they need to control their their attempted spouses, their attempted um, relationships, whatever the relationship is, and it really comes down to the fact that we are so out of control and under someone else's control. So that really, that really stuck out in my mind, and I just wanted to, you know, put that out there. That was uh, Pacola's mom, uh, Miss Breedlove, who was uh, had to do all this ordering of things uh, when she was younger. And she had Miss um, Breedlove had the the club foot as well, which would make her even more in need of having control, um, being a a person of color, well, correction, being a non-white person, being a black person specifically, um, when you have generation after generation seen that no one, the men have no power, the women have no power, you have other people who are dictating to you, and you're also supposedly born with a defect. Now, uh, many of us think that already we are defective because we're black or different shades of black. We already have been told generation after generation that we are defective. So since we don't even have control over that, we have to control something. So I, it just stuck out in my mind that she was very compulsive, and I see it all the time. And I have my own compulsions that I have to work um, that I have to work at containing and understanding that it is because we are in this system, a global system that is that's literally driving people insane. I, I go into um, the homeless shelter that I work at every week, and I see compulsion. If it's having to constantly clean crumbs off the table in front of the gentleman or the compulsion of sitting. There are people who sit from the moment they get there until they leave in the afternoon. They don't move. That's a compulsion as well. So it, it just, wow, we have, to, we have to become conscious of what it is that we're doing and why we are doing it. And it's time to grow up. It's past time for us to grow up because we were, we were at some point in world history, men and women, who at least some of us, if not most of us, were thinking clearly. But now 
it's like I've heard some of our scholars talk about us being teenagers, and I kind of wonder if the mental state of the vast majority of black people specifically is even that of a teenager for some of us. So, wow, it's just overwhelming. It's profound, but it has to be dealt with. So that's that's all I had to say, all I had to share. I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, we had a new caller. Hang on one second. We had a new caller. I think the foot thing might be an homage to Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, I think that actually happened to her as well with stepping on a nail. I could be wrong about that, though. Uh, Thomas or 9325. 9325, your line is open. Nine three two five. Did you have a question, comment? Nine three two five. Okay, assuming uh, he might just be listening. Uh, last four digits, nine three two five. Last time I checked, did you have a question or comment? Hmm. Okay, I will check in a little later and see if uh, you have anything. Uh, feel free. Some, I didn't mean to interrupt Bruce Fine. Anybody else? Um, I, I wanted to ask if if you guys think um, that it's truly possible to get healed in as as prisoners of war in your in the enemy's camp in your abuser's home. Is, do you do you really think that that's possible? I think um, I think no. Um, but you know this this goes back to I have theories about um, this the the situation that we're in. I look at it as. Um, a blood in blood out situation so I think that the horrible the amount of blood shed um, the amount of devastation and destruction that has taken place to create this particular reality I think that it's going to take an equal amount of bloodshed and devastation to reverse it and I said sometimes and I rationalize um I mean, we, we can we can talk about it, we can rationalize, we can change our thoughts, our speech, and our behavior, but um, ultimately, we're dealing with, it's what we're dealing with. I don't even want to say who we, we are dealing with. Like, our, our nemesis is, is going to have to be confronted on the plane that they reside on. And it's not a rational plane. It's not a a workable type of reasoning or a coming together. Or it's it it's just it it would have to take something absolutely catastrophic because for us to truly begin to heal, I feel like we would we we have to become totally separate. We have to totally separate. And I think that it's gonna take some sort of something crazy. Something very destructive will have to happen for us to totally separate. That's just my opinion. But until that happens, no. Because the the psychological, um, I've seen studies done on children who 
have um they they had separation issues or something happened traumatic in their upbringing to where they were not brought up correctly and they didn't have uh the proper tools the proper affection this that and the other and like the the therapy that these people have to undergo to to live normally is so extensive and the system of white supremacy is not going to allow that for black people I mean, that that type of therapy, they, it, it can't be allowed for the system to exist, just in my opinion. Yeah, because that's what I'm, I'm thinking. Be, before groups are categorized as black people, Asian people, you know, white people, whatever, these are, are social and political constructs. Be, before all of that took place, I mean, we are biological beings first, and I think it it gets lost on us that if a human being, a person, not a black person, not a white person, a person receives certain amount of consistent trauma. Uh, abuse, you can, ex- and, and never any healing, never taken out, taken out of that abusive tra- or traumatic situation, a person will go through just what we're going through. And I think too many times we, we forget that, that before we're black, before we are kings and queens and all of that, we are this this body. And you can't do certain things to the psyche. You can't do certain things to the to the brain. You can't do certain things to the spirit. And and just expect a person to just get up and have no anxieties. Have no fears. Have no whatever it goes with um, when you are traumatized. And and too many times, I think we ignore that and just say, "Hey, we we're black. We we were kings. We were this. We were that." But before all of those things, we are a a a we're made of a brain and blood and and cells. And when those things get Harmed or, or, or damaged, you have to you have to have you have to repair those things with um, the the things that repairs it, and it's not necessarily telling people that you were a, a great people. You you have to you have to get healing, and that's why I keep saying, is it possible to? Get healing in your master's house, in your enemy's house, in your uh, where you are a prisoner of war. Before we are black, I, we are people. We are. If if I hope I'm making sense, I hope I'm getting my point across, and and. We seem to only view ourselves as this social and political category 
that we've been placed in by another group of people. Well, I think it's interesting how you said that we're in someone else's house. Um, when I think of true uh, liberation, I mean, I don't think that you can truly be liberated living in someone else's house. It, it mm -hmm. makes me think about uh, living in my parents' house. I mean, your parents are people who, you know, if you're fortunate, these people love you. You know, they love you and they care for you and they nurture you. But when you get to a certain point and you living in their house and you want equality and you want to call some shots and you want this and you want that, it becomes a problem. And these are your parents. They love you. It cannot, you know, it's a certain, it's something that you're not going to be able to achieve while you're in their house. If you want liberation, you want to call shots, you want to be able to come and go then you have to be able to step out into the world and get your own thing to control. I mean, and that's even with your parents that love you. So just think, put it into context. We dealing with our enemies of people who ultimately, I think that they are genetically and biologically constructed to hate us. <laughs> so I, you know, mm -hmm. but I, you know, at the same time, I definitely think that it's going to be, a series of events uh, that way that's going to force us into positions to where we're truly ousted and we are true. We're truly put into a position to where we have to show and prove because I think just like white people are not going to consciously stop being racist and practicing racism. I think that black people are not going to consciously stop depending on white people and looking to white people as their salvation and their saviors. I mean, it's a, it's a sickness across the board. I think that just like white people ain't going to stop being racist, it's, it's the majority of black people here in, in this part of the world are not going to um, lose the mentality that they're comfortable, that they can depend on the white person to always win, that they're on the winning team, and that they can conform to what white people want and what they need and that that's what you know ultimately is going to be their salvation uh, let's pause on our dialogue uh, make sure we have time to get the second portion of the audio uh, book in and uh, then we'll resume the dialogue I am going to have to read one page during this segment as well but it won't come up until almost the very end so we'll do that I'll give out the number once the clip is done uh, once again, Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye. Excellent section. Pauline and Charlie loved each other. He seemed to relish her company and even to enjoy her country ways and lack of knowledge about city things. He talked with her about her foot and asked when they walked through the town or in the fields if she was tired. Instead of ignoring her infirmity, pretending it was not there, he made it seem like something special and endearing. For the first time, Pauline felt that her bad foot was an asset. And he did touch her, firmly but gently, just as she had dreamed. But minus the gloom of setting suns and lonely river banks, she was secure and grateful. 
He was kind and lively. She had not known there was so much laughter in the world. They agreed to marry and go way up north, where Charlie said steel mills were begging for workers. Young, loving, and full of energy, they came to Lorraine, Ohio. Charlie found work in the steel mills right away, and Pauline started keeping house. And then she lost her front tooth. But there must have been a speck, a brown speck, easily mistaken for food, but which did not leave, which sat on the enamel for months and grew until it cut into the surface and then to the brown putty underneath, finally eating away to the root, but avoiding the nerve so its presence was not noticeable or uncomfortable. Then the weakened root, having grown accustomed to the poison, responded one day to severe pressure, and the tooth fell free, leaving a ragged stump behind. But even before the little brown speck, there must have been the conditions, the setting, that would allow it to exist in the first place. In that young and growing Ohio town, whose side streets even were paved with concrete, which sat on the edge of a calm blue lake, which boasted an affinity with Oberlin, the underground railroad station just 13 miles away, this melting pot on the lip of America facing the cold but receptive Canada, what could go wrong? Me and Charlie was getting along good, man. We come up north. Supposed to be more jobs and all. We moved into two rooms up over a furniture store, and I said about housekeeping. Charlie was working at the steel plant, and everything was looking good. I don't know what all happened. Everything changed. It was hard to get to know folks up here, and I missed my people. I weren't used to so much white folks. The ones I'd seen before were something hateful, but they didn't come around too much. I mean, we didn't have too much truck with them just now and then in the fields or at the commissary. But they want all over us. Up north, they was everywhere. Next door, downstairs, all over the streets, and colored folks few and far between. Northern colored folks was different, too. Dicty-like, no better than whites for meanness. They could make you feel just as no count, except I didn't expect it from them. That was the lonesomest time of my life. I remember looking out them front windows just waiting for Charlie to come home at three o'clock. I didn't even have a cat to talk to. In her loneliness, she turned to her husband for reassurance, entertainment, for things to fill the vacant places. Housework was not enough. There were only two rooms and no yard to keep or move about in. The women in the town wore high-heeled shoes, and when Pauline tried to wear them, they aggravated her shuffle into a pronounced limp. Charlie was kindness still, but began to resist her total dependence on him. They were beginning to have less and less to say to each other. He had no problem finding other people and other things to occupy him. Men were always climbing the stairs asking for him, and he was happy to accompany them, leaving her alone. Pauline felt uncomfortable with the few black women she met. They were amused by her because she did not straighten her hair. When she tried to make up her face as they did, it came off rather badly. Their goading glances and private snickers at her way of talking, saying cheering, and dressing, 
developed in her a desire for new clothes. When Charlie began to quarrel about the money she wanted, she decided to go to work. Taking jobs as a day worker helped with the clothes, and even a few things for the apartment, but it didn't help with Charlie. He was not pleased with her purchases and began to tell her so. Their marriage was shredded with quarrels. She was still no more than a girl, and still waiting for that plateau of happiness, that hand of a precious lord who, when her way grew drear, would always linger near. Only now she had a clear idea of what drear meant. Money became the focus of all their discussions, hers for clothes, his for drink. The sad thing was that Pauline didn't really care for clothes and makeup. She merely wanted other women to cast favorable glances her way. After several months of doing day work, she took a steady job in the home of a family of slender means and nervous, pretentious ways. Charlie commenced to get meaner and meaner and wanted to fight me all the time. I give him as good as I got. Had to. Looked like working for that woman and fighting Charlie was all I did. Pies. But I hold on to my jobs, even though working for that woman was more than a notion. It wasn't so much her meanness as just simple-minded. Her whole family was. Couldn't get along with one another worth nothing. You'd think with a pretty house like that and all the money they could hold on to, they would enjoy one another. She haul off and cry over the leastest thing. If one of her friends cut her short on the telephone, she'd start to cry. She should have been glad she had a telephone. I ain't got one yet. I recollect once how her baby brother, who she put through dentistry school, didn't invite them to some big party he throws. There was a big to-do about that. Everybody stayed on the phone for days, fussing and carrying on. She asked me, Pauline, what would you do if your own brother had a party and didn't invite you? I said if and I really wanted to go to that party, I reckon I'd go anyhow. Never mind what he want. She just sucked her teeth a little and made out like what I said was dumb. All the while, I was thinking how dumb she was. Who ever told her that her brother was her friend? Folks can't like folks just because they have the same mama. I tried to like that woman myself. She was good about giving me stuff, but I just couldn't like her. Soon as I worked up a good feeling on her account, she'd do something ignorant and start in to tell me how to clean and do. If I left her on her own, she'd drown in dirt. I didn't have to pick up after chicken and pie the way I had to pick up after them. None of them knew so much as how to wipe their behinds. I know, because I did the washing and couldn't pee proper to save their lives. Her husband ain't hit the bowl yet. Nasty white folks is about the nastiest thing there is. But I would have stayed on, excepting for Charlie come over by where I was working and cut up so. He come there drunk, want some money. When that white woman see him, she turned red. She tried to act strong-like, but she was scared bad. Anyway, she told Charlie to get out, or she would call the police. He cussed her and started pulling on me. I would have gone upside his head, but I don't want no dealings with the police, so... I'd taken my things and left. I tried to get back, but she didn't want me no more if I was going to stay with Charlie. She said she would let me stay if I left him. I thought about that. But later on, it didn't seem none too bright for a black woman to leave a black man for a white woman. 
She didn't ever give me the $11 she owed me, neither. That hurt bad. The gas man had cut the gas off, and I couldn't cook none. I really begged that woman for my money. I went to see her. She was mad as a wet hen, kept on telling me I owed her for uniforms and some old broken-down bed she gave me. I didn't know if I owed her or not, but I needed my money. She wouldn't let up none, either, even when I give her my word that Charlie wouldn't come back there no more. Then I got so desperate I asked her if she wouldn't loan it to me. She was quiet for a spell, and then she told me I shouldn't let a man take advantage over me, that I should have more respect, and it was my husband's duty to pay the bills, and if he couldn't, I should leave and get alimony, all such simple stuff. What was he going to give me alimony on? I seen she didn't understand that all I needed from her was my $11 to pay the gas man so I could cook. She couldn't get that one thing through her thick head. Are you going to leave him, Pauline? She kept on saying. I thought she'd give me my money if I said I would, so I said, yes, ma'am. All right, she said. You leave him and then come back to work and we'll let bygones be bygones. Can I have my money today? I said. No, she said. Only when you leave him. I'm only thinking of you and your future. What good is he, Pauline? What good is he to you? How are you going to answer a woman like that, who don't know what a good man is, and say out of one side of her mouth she's thinking of your future, but won't give you your own money so you can buy you something besides bologna to eat? So I said, no good, ma'am. He ain't no good to me. But just the same, I think I'd best stay on. She got up and I left. When I got outside... I felt pains in my crotch. I had held my legs together so tight trying to make that woman understand. But I reckon now she couldn't understand. She married a man with a slash in his face instead of a mouth. So how could she understand? One winter, Pauline discovered she was pregnant. When she told Charlie, he surprised her by being pleased. He began to drink less and come home more often. They eased back into a relationship more like the early days of their marriage, when he asked if she was tired or wanted him to bring her something from the store. In this state of ease, Pauline stopped doing day work and returned to her own housekeeping. But the loneliness in those two rooms had not gone away. When the winter sun hit the peeling green paint of the kitchen chairs, when the smoked hocks were boiling in the pot, when all she could hear was the truck delivering furniture downstairs, she thought about back home, about how she had been all alone most of the time then, too, but that this lonesomeness was different. Then she stopped staring at the green chairs, at the delivery truck. She went to the movies instead. There in the dark, her memory was refreshed, and she succumbed to her earlier dreams. Along with the idea of romantic love, she was introduced to another, physical beauty. Probably the most destructive ideas in the history of human thought. Both originated in envy, thrived in insecurity, and ended in disillusion. In equating physical beauty with virtue, she stripped her mind, bound it, and collected self-contempt by the heap. She forgot lust and simple caring for her. 
She regarded love as possessive mating, and romance as the goal of the spirit. It would be for her a wellspring from which she would draw the most destructive emotions, deceiving the lover and seeking to imprison the beloved, curtailing freedom in every way. She was never able, after her education in the movies, to look at a face and not assign it some category in the scale of absolute beauty, and the scale was one she absorbed in full from the silver screen. There at last were the darkened woods, the lonely roads, the river banks, the gentle knowing eyes. There the flawed became whole, the blind sighted, and the lame and halt threw away their crutches. There death was dead, and people made every gesture in a cloud of music. There the black and white images came together making a magnificent whole, all projected through the ray of light from above and behind. It was really a simple pleasure, but she learned all there was to love and all there was to hate. The onlyest time I've been happy seemed like when I was in the picture show. Every time I got, I went. I go early. Before the show started, they'd cut off the lights and everything be black. Then the screen would light up, and I'd move right on in them pictures. White men taking such good care of their women, and they all dressed up in big, clean houses with the bathtubs right in the same room with the toilet. Them pictures gave me a lot of pleasure. But it made coming home hard, and looking at Charlie hard. I don't know. I remember one time I went to see Clark Gable and Jean Harlow. I fixed my hair up like I'd seen hers in a magazine. I piled on the side with one little curl on my forehead. It looked just like her. Well, almost just like her. Anyway, I sat in that show with my hair done up that way and had a good time. I thought I'd see it through to the end again, and I got up to get me some candy. I was sitting back in my seat, and I'd taken a big bite of that candy, and it pulled a tooth right out of my mouth. Could have cried. I had good teeth. Not a rotten one in my head. I don't believe I ever did get over that. There I was, five months pregnant, trying to look like Jean Harlow and the front tooth gone. Everything went then. Looked like I just didn't care no more after that. I let my hair go back, plaited it up, and settled down to just being ugly. I still went to the pictures, though, but the meanness got worse. I wanted my tooth back. Charlie poked fun at me, and we started fighting again. I tried to kill him. He didn't hit me too hard because I was pregnant, I guess. But the fights, once they got started up again, kept up. He began to make me madder than anything I knowed. And I couldn't keep my hands off him. Well, I had that baby. A boy. And after that, got pregnant again with another one. But it wasn't like I thought it was going to be. I loved them and all, I guess. But maybe it was having no money or maybe it was Charlie, but they sure worried the life out of me. Sometimes I'd catch myself hollering at them and beating them, and I'd feel sorry for them. But I couldn't seem to stop. When I had the second one, a girl, I remember I said I'd love it no matter what it looked like. She looked like a black ball of hair. I don't recollect trying to get pregnant that first time, but 
that second time, I actually tried to get pregnant. Maybe because I'd had one already and wasn't scared to do it. Anyway, I felt good and wasn't thinking on the carrying, just the baby itself. I used to talk to it whilst it be still in the womb. Like good friends we was. You know, I'd be hanging wash, and I knowed lifting weren't good for it. I'd say to it, hold on now. I'm going to hang up these few rags. Don't get froggy. It'd be over soon. It wouldn't leap or nothing. Or I'd be mixing something in a bowl for the other child, and I'd talk to it then, too. You know, just friendly talk. On up to the end, I felt good about that baby. I went to the hospital when my time come, so I could be easeful. I didn't want to have it at home, like I'd done with the boy. They put me in a big room with a whole mess of women. The pains was coming, but not too bad. A little old doctor come to examine me. He had all sorts of stuff. He gloved his hand and put some kind of jelly on it and rammed it up between my legs. When he left off, some more doctors come. One old one and some young ones. The old one was learning the young ones about babies, showing them how to do. When he got to me, he said, Now these here women you don't have any trouble with. They deliver right away with no pain, just like horses. The young ones smiled a little. They looked at my stomach and between my legs. They never said nothing to me. Only one looked at me, looked at my face, I mean. I looked right back at him. He dropped his eyes and turned red. He knowed, I reckoned, that maybe I wasn't no horse foaling. But the mothers, they didn't know. They went on. I seed them talking to them white women. How you feel? Gonna have twins? Just shucking them, of course. But nice talk. Nice friendly talk. I got edgy. And when them pains got harder, I was glad. Glad to have something else to think about. I moaned something awful. The pains wasn't as bad as I let on, but I had to let them people know having a baby was more than a bowel movement. I hurt just like them white women. Just because I wasn't hooping and hollering before didn't mean I wasn't feeling pain. What'd they think? That just because I knowed how to have a baby with no fuss, that my behind wasn't pulling and aching like theirs? Besides, that doctor don't know what he's talking about. He must never see no mare foal. Who say they don't have no pain? Just because she don't cry? Because she can't say it? They think it ain't there? If they look in her eyes and see them eyeballs lolling back, see the sorrowful look, they'd know. Anyways, the baby come. Big old healthy thing. She looked different from what I thought. Reckon I talked to it so much before I conjured up a mind's eye view of it. So when I seed it, it was like looking at a picture of your mama when she was a girl. You know who she is, but she don't look the same. They give her to me for nursing, and she liked to pull my nipple off right away. She caught on fast. Not like Sammy, who was the hardest child to feed. But Picola looked like she knowed right off what to do. Right smart baby she was. I used to like to watch her. You know... They make them greedy sounds, eyes all soft and wet, a cross between a puppy and a dying man. But I knowed she was ugly. Head full of pretty hair, but Lord, she was ugly. 
When Sammy and Piccola were still young, Pauline had to go back to work. She was older now, with no time for dreams and movies. It was time to put all the pieces together, make coherence where before there had been none. The children gave her this need. She herself was no longer a child. So she became, and her process of becoming was like most of ours. She developed a hatred of things that mystified or obstructed her, acquired virtues that were easy to maintain, assigned herself a role in the scheme of things, and harked back to simpler times for gratification. She took on the full responsibility and recognition of breadwinner and returned to church. First, however, she moved out of the two rooms into a spacious first floor of a building that had been built as a store. She came into her own with the women who had despised her by being more moral than they. She avenged herself on Charlie by forcing him to indulge in the weaknesses she despised. She joined a church where shouting was frowned upon, served on stewardess board number three, and became a member of the ladies' circle number one. At prayer meeting... She moaned and sighed over Charlie's ways and hoped God would help her keep the children from the sins of the father. She stopped saying cheerin and said children instead. She let another tooth fall and was outraged by painted ladies who thought only of clothes and men. Holding Charlie as a model of sin and failure, she bore him like a crown of thorns and her children like a cross. It was her good fortune to find a permanent job in the home of a well-to-do family whose members were affectionate, appreciative, and generous. She looked at their houses, smelled their linen, touched their silk draperies, and loved all of it. The child's pink nightie, the stacks of white pillow slips edged with embroidery, the sheets with top hems picked out with blue cornflowers. She became what is known as an ideal servant, for such a role filled practically all her needs. When she bathed the little fisher girl, it was in a porcelain tub with silvery taps running infinite quantities of hot, clear water. She dried her in fluffy white towels and put her in cuddly night clothes. Then she brushed the yellow hair, enjoying the roll and slip of it between her fingers. No zinc tub, no buckets of stove-heated water, no flaky, stiff, gray towels washed in a kitchen sink, dried in a dusty backyard, no tangled black puffs of rough wool to comb. Soon, she stopped trying to keep her own house. The things she could afford to buy did not last, had no beauty or style, and were absorbed by the dingy storefront. More and more she neglected her house, her children, her man, they were like the afterthoughts one has just before sleep, the early morning and late evening edges of her day, the dark edges that made the daily life with the fishers lighter, more delicate, more lovely. Here she could arrange things, clean things, line things up in neat rows. Here her foot flopped around on deep pile carpets, and there was no uneven sound. Here she found beauty, order, cleanliness and praise. Mr. Fisher said, I would rather sell her blueberry cobblers than real estate. She reigned over cupboards stacked high with food that would not be eaten for weeks, even months. She was queen of canned vegetables bought by the case. 
special fondants and ribbon candy curled up in tiny silver dishes. The creditors and service people who humiliated her when she went to them on her own behalf respected her, were even intimidated by her when she spoke for the fishers. She refused beef slightly dark or with edges not properly trimmed. The slightly reeking fish that she accepted for her own family she would all but throw in the fish man's face if he sent it to the fisher house. Power, praise, and luxury were hers in this household. They even gave her what she had never had, a nickname, Polly. It was her pleasure to stand in her kitchen at the end of a day and survey her handiwork, knowing there were soap bars by the dozen, bacon by the rasher, and reveling in her shiny pots and pans and polished floors. Hearing, we'll never let her go. We could never find anybody like Polly. She will not leave the kitchen until everything is in order. Really, she is the ideal servant. Pauline kept this order, this beauty for herself, a private world, and never introduced it into her storefront or to her children. Them she bent towards respectability, and in so doing taught them to fear. Fear of being clumsy, fear of being like their father, fear of not being loved by God, fear of madness like Collie's mother's. Into her son she beat a loud desire to run away, and into her daughter she beat a fear of growing up, fear of other people, fear of life. All the meaningfulness of her life was in her work, for her virtues were intact. She was an active churchwoman, did not drink, smoke, or carouse, defended herself mightily against Kali, rose above him in every way, and felt she was fulfilling a mother's role conscientiously when she pointed out their father's faults to keep them from having them, or punished them when they showed any slovenliness, no matter how slight, when she worked 12 to 16 hours a day to support them. And the world itself agreed with her. It was only sometimes, sometimes and then rarely, that she thought about the old days or what her life had turned to. They were musing, idle thoughts, full sometimes of the old dreaminess, but not the kind of thing she cared to dwell on. I started to leave him once, but something came up. Once, after he tried to set the house on fire, I was all set in my mind to go. I can't even remember now what held me. He sure ain't give me much of a life, but it wasn't all bad. Sometimes things wasn't all bad. He used to come easing into bed sometimes, not too drunk. I make out like I'm sleeping, because it's late. And he'd taken three dollars out of my pocketbook that morning or something. I hear him breathing, but I don't look around. I can see in my mind's eye his black arms thrown back behind his head. The muscles like great big peach stones sanded down. 
with veins running like little swollen rivers down his arms. Without touching him, I be feeling those ridges on the tips of my fingers. I see the palms of his hands calloused to granite, and the long fingers curled up and still. I think about the thick, knotty hair on his chest and the two big swells his breast muscles make. I want to rub my face hard in his chest and feel the hair cut my skin. I know just where the hair growth slacks out, just above his navel, and how it picks up again and spreads out. Maybe he'll shift a little and his leg will touch me, or I feel his flank just graze my behind. I don't move even yet. Then he lift his head, turn over, and put his hand on my waist. If I don't move, he'll move his hand over to pull and knead my stomach, soft and slow-like. I still don't move because I don't want him to stop. I want to pretend sleep and have him keep on rubbing my stomach. Then he will lean his head down and bite my tit. Then I don't want him to rub my stomach anymore. I want him to put his hand between my legs. I pretend to wake up and turn to him, but not opening my legs. I want him to open them for me. He does, and I be soft and wet where his fingers are strong and hard. I be softer than I ever been before. All my strength in his hand. My brain curls up like wilting leaves. A funny, empty feeling is in my hand. I want to grab hold of something, so I hold his head. His mouth is under my chin. Then I don't want his hand between my legs no more because I think I am softening away. I stretch my legs open, and he's on top of me, too heavy to hold and too light not to. He puts his thing in me, in me, in me. I wrap my feet around his back so he can't get away. His face is next to mine. The bed springs sounds like them crickets used to back home. He puts his fingers in mine, and we stretch our arms outwise, like Jesus on the cross. I hold on tight. My fingers and my feet hold on tight because everything else is going, going. I know he wants me to come first, but I can't. Not until he does. Not until I feel him loving me, just me. Sinking into me, not until I know that my flesh is all that be on his mind, that he couldn't stop if he had to, that he would die rather than take his thing out of me, of me, not until he has let go of all he has and give it to me, to me, to me. When he does, I feel a power. I be strong. I be pretty. I be young. And then I wait. He shivers and tosses his head. Now I be strong enough, pretty enough, and young enough to let him make me come. I take my fingers out of his and put my hands on his behind. My legs drop back onto the bed. I don't make no noise because a cheering might hear. I begin to feel those little bits of color floating up into me, deep in me. That streak of green... From the June bug light, the purple from the berries trickling along my thighs, Mama's lemonade yellow runs sweet in me. Then I feel like I'm laughing between my legs, and the laughing gets all mixed up with the colors, 
and I'm afraid I'll come and afraid I won't, but I know I will. And I do. And it be rainbow all inside. And it lasts and lasts and lasts. I want to thank him, but don't know how, so I pat him like you do a baby. He asks me if I'm all right. I say yes. He gets off me and lies down to sleep. I want to say something, but I don't. I don't want to take my mind off in the rainbow. I should get up and go to the toilet, but I don't. Besides, Charlie is asleep with his leg thrown over me. I can't move and don't want to. But it ain't like that anymore. Most times, he's thrashing away inside me before I'm woke and through when I am. The rest of the time, I can't even be next to his stinking drunk self. But I don't care about it no more. My maker will take care of me. I know he will. I know he will. Besides, it don't make no difference about this old earth. There's sure to be a glory. Only thing I miss sometimes is that rainbow. But like I say, I don't recollect it much anymore. This ends side two of cassette three of The Bluest Eye. Please fast forward to the end before loading cassette four. Context of white supremacy. If you think you would like to comment, participate, uh, the number to dial is 760. Five six nine seven six seven six, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Uh, press star six if you have a question that works for Skype to uh, Skype two. Just open your dial pad star six if you have a question or a comment. Uh, if you're on the talk shoe line, it's star eight. Uh, don't want to get folks at the last minute. If you think you want to comment, don't wait until, uh, if you're on the East Coast, don't wait until, you know, 1055 to decide that you want to talk. Go ahead and get your hand up if you have uh, something you want to add to the dialogue. Uh, so, Be More, Triumph 3000, Bruce Vaughn, your lines are all open. Many B as well. Um, I apologize because I had sort of clicked over and came in towards the end. But um, one thing that just stuck out to me was at the very end where um, she was equating sex with love and how it made her feel pretty and wanted and things like that. Um, I feel like that's very relevant even now. <clears throat> A lot of non-white women, um, young and old, equate sex with love and the feeling of being wanted and pretty and things like that. So that stuck out to me. I, I also, I, I had to step away and I came in um, on the end as well. I kind of stuck out to me that 
uh, after all of her ex- ecstasy, if you will, um, she said, I-, I didn't know what to do afterwards, so I, I had him like a baby. And, I- and my mind went to um, Dr. Welsing uh, when um, she talks about uh, black men calling their home a crib and just the, the the different name child names that are given to or or that grown well not grown but um chronologically uh adult black men um have and just I don't know that her patting him like a baby just kinda stuck out to me. I think that uh, what stood out to me was how it kind of started out with her tooth and the speck on her tooth. And I think that the breakdown of her tooth and what she's saying about how the tooth, how it grew and eventually fell out, but the conditions had to be there. I think that she was using that as a metaphor for uh, what happened to their relationship. I think it's a metaphor, um, I guess, to, to their existence in general. And and I think that that correlates to um, the breakdown of Charlie, like how she was saying a baby. I think that he almost sort of reverted to a baby-like state, like showing up at her job to ask for money, stealing money out of her purse, just a whole, like, uh, deterioration of that situation, I think, is interesting. And to piggyback on what uh, B. Moore said about um, equating sex with love, um, and this is this is one of the ways that uh, racist man and racist woman are able to um, get such a a foothold um, is is through sex because it's the the slave that thinks that when Massa and Mrs. Massa are having sex with them, that it sexually sewering them, that it's love, that it for them it means more than it does. It, it's a, a weapon of war for the perpetrator, uh, but the uh, the victim, the prey, thinks of it as is more than what it really is. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Should we do, everyone? 
but she sort of felt adored by these white people because she um, initially she didn't have a nickname or any type of name of adoration, but they gave her a nickname, which was Polly. So she felt some type of way about that. that I guess that she finally had some sense of belonging or something of, like that. I think part of it was fantasy as well. Like how I say she started stepping into those movies and those picture shows. I think mm. that became a type of uh, escape in a fantasy world, you know, that she was creating for herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of, was that Eddie Moore? from the White Privilege Conference talking about the soothing, some kind of soothing lotion. <laughs> that popped into my head. Mm. That, uh, it's such a contrast. I think, like, the scene where the white people are saying... Oh, you're the ideal servant, and and you could you have a job here forever. I think that same line is in the help, where uh, towards mm-hmm. the end of the film they tell her, you know, you could you got a job here forever. You can you can cook our food and clean our toilets for the rest of your life. Um, it's, don't you want your babies to cook out? And when you die, your babies can do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but even with that, like as revolting as that is, it's such a contrast. Like she can have pride. I clean these floors. She even takes ownership. These are my floors. I clean them. I clean this house. I prepare the food. I take care of the children. Uh, even vicariously, I can enjoy the blonde blue eyes that I don't have, but I can enjoy the child's hair when she talks about enjoying just combing the child's hair and giving her a bath in the porcelain white. Uh, tub. It's such a strong contrast to the way she talks about her life when she's not around these white people. I think that, in and, a, and I think that's that illusion, that illusion that she's closer to whiteness. She's somehow participating uh, in the lives of white people. That she's got, she's playing an integral role in that. Um, that I think it, even 
even contrasting that when she gives birth to Pecola and talking about what an ugly child she was. I mean, it's like she didn't even have pride in the way that she talked about her. I think she said it was a black ball of hair, the way she described giving birth to her own child, Pecola, one of the main characters, contrasting that with the pride in the way that she talks about working for these white people. It is astounding, that illusion. The same thing with the picture shows. And I'm, I was it uh, I think it was Malcolm X who said something about um, everyone talks about the slave master, but not too many people mention the slave maker. And I, I think a lot of times we we forget when we say 500 years or 300 years we were in chattel slavery that um most of most of us um did no freedom this is all we knew we were born into this our mothers grandmothers great grandmothers just generations born into slavery never stepped foot uh on uh the continent of africa come out of the womb born and this is all they know this is the norm for them where we would say hey that slavery that was their life um and and it sometimes i think we think that they had something to compare their life to i know a lot of us uh, said oh i didn't know i was poor growing up until i got older and got around others and then i realized i was poor many of them probably didn't know they were quote you know didn't know they were slaves or, or because this is this had been our this had been our lives for centuries and what what are you comparing it to when this is all you've known so she's went to have to have your master say you know, I'm going to give you a special name or I'm going to treat you this way. For that time, that was like, wow, because that's all they had known. We 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 now can look back and go, you know, oh, my God, they were white identified and da-da-da-da-da. But that's all, that's all they knew. They had nothing to compare it to. They weren't born free and then come tomorrow they are slaves. They were born into this life, and so they, I think they were uh, responding to what was normal for them. she was responding to what was normal. Did you all think it was significant? Oh, did I interrupt somebody? I think what was significant, When they talk about first moving from the South to uh, Ohio, uh, Pecola specifically when she says she wasn't accustomed to being around so many white people like it really bothered her and 
uh, how rude the white people were to her like it seems like she didn't uh, that illusion wasn't as strong at least initially uh, when they first moved there in fact she seemed bothered uh, about being around white people I wrote that line down when she was working for the first white people uh, she talked about them and how they were so dirty and they couldn't use the toilet straight and, and just they were the dirtiest things ever and she said uh, the white woman wouldn't give her her money unless she left uh, her husband and she said she wasn't going to do it and she said it just didn't it's, she says it didn't seem none too bright for a black woman to leave a black man for a white woman just what a line um, but yeah it didn't seem like that if we say white idea, it didn't seem like it was that strong, at least when they first moved there. She didn't seem that enthralled with white people immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, I think she she went into a whole uh, escape period. It's like she she got to a point where she wanted to separate herself from the husband, separate herself from her reality, just separate herself from everything. And I think that when they first moved there, um, that relationship and her husband, that was her sanctuary. But that kind of, you know, she was totally dependent on on him and that situation began to deteriorate. So she didn't have that as a sanctuary anymore. So she kind of like, you know, reinvented herself into, you know, this white identified uh, person. Like, like she said, like a soothing lotion using... Um, white reality, white people, white media is like an escape from everything. Like she sort of checked out on the husband, the relationship, everything. Like forget this, I'm just gonna do me over here with the white people. But is that a form of Stockholm syndrome? Know that uh, when you when you become to identify with your kidnappers. Well, I think that it's. I think it's an interesting dynamic about her, because they said that she was the ninth of eleven children, so she coming from this huge family, and it said that her lame foot or that deformity is what saved her from being anonymous or like I mean so she she already I mean from her from her inception you know abandonment and um needing uh you know being codependent I think that that will play a, a large part in the person's life that comes up with that type of uh upbringing and for you to not have that I mean I can I mean I just can totally see how it leads into what she became into escapism and you know this this being that she became I can see how that just grows from I mean it's a seed I see how everything grows into what it is Mm -hmm. did anyone else see the um the imagery of, uh, of Pauline sitting in the theater and wanting to have her hair curled or having her hair curled like the white actress and that glorification to the more recent film with uh, The Green Mile with uh, John, was it John? Not John Henry Clark. 
Duncan, uh, where he is, you know, all he wants to do is watch the, the white people, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, twirl around. That those two scenes really parallel for me, and in, in how this this uh, black is black escapism into whiteness. Since Shawshank Redemption too. Mm-hmm. Rita Hayworth. It just says to me the, that that powerful impact and the impressions that going to the going to movies and the, the large screens and think about it the, the, the movie theater screens surround you now in IMAX and that you're supposed to just leap right in there with the characters with in 3D and uh, think about how impressionable children. Our children are, and they go to these movies, and they can't distinguish or draw the, the, the separate themselves from that fantasy and reality, even with big screen TVs in their home, this, teaching them how to hate themselves. Yeah, this is why marketing firms uh, have psychiatrists and psychologists as their um, consultants because they understand how the visual, how, how, how very potent it is on, on the psyche. And, and I think about how the companies um, during the Super Bowl, they spend, I mean, huge amounts of money for 30-second ads, millions, tens of millions of dollars for 30 seconds, if that, if that amount of time, because they understand what the, how much the visual affects the psyche. I can definitely attest to that. Um, and I would say my training is I went I went to college for advertising graphic design and in that training you my background is heavily based in not only psychology but abnormal psychology I can't even tell you how many courses I mean how many classes that I had to take for psychology and abnormal psychology you have to have a thorough understanding of psychology and it's not just the visual that they are that they have mastered and they understand the importance of when you see an advertisement I'm talking about they've thought about the visual uh, the sounds the colors mm -hmm. uh, I'm every single every aspect of the advertisement that you see especially if it's big corporation I'm talking about it's all thought out and it all has a meaning and it all has a purpose and it all dips into your subconscious and it I mean it is is very um it's, deliberate <laughs> it's deliberate but at the same time it's crazy I remember sitting in a, a sociology class um thinking to myself like this field 
you know, I came to a realization, like, this field is like, I felt like it was worse than being a lawyer in the justice system. I'm like, this is, uh, you know, being, being an artist, you know, it's crazy to come to a realization that you're, you in the field of study that has an effect on people. Like you, you are a serious part of the machine. I remember sitting in the classroom coming to that realization, like this role right here, being the role of a visual artist, a graphic designer, a marketing person, you are sitting in, I mean, that's like the belly of the beast. Like you, you got first hand over people's psyche. Mm -hmm. It's like hypnosis. <laughs> Robots. Gone with the wind uh, as well. Uh, Clark Gable, he was one of the white people that she was talking about on the scene. Clark Gable and Jean Harlow. Uh, Clark Gable was Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. I think that's the role he's most known for. Um, maybe she was even watching Gone with the Wind. Who knows? And he told Mammy he couldn't and gone with the wind that she was just the greatest and he didn't know what he would do without her. Oh, Mr. Butler. <laughs> uh, I think the when you were uh, having a, a study session on Urugu, I'm not sure who it was, but somebody had brought out the point um, talking about religion, how um, black women using religion. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but something about it being, you know, making them sort of feel holier than thou over men. Um, I forget who was saying it or what the scenario was to where that, that conversation came up. But I think it's interesting that, um, you know, her going, starting to go to church and her, you know, the, the testing and using Christianity and that religion to sort of despise and disdain the behavior of her husband and the place that that, you know, psychologically put her in. I thought that that was an interesting dynamic because when they said it during the Yorubu study session, I'm thinking like, wow, maybe that is the reason why black women are so um, enthralled in, in the Christian church and going to church and the ritual of making sure that they're there on time every week, you know, on the usher board or whatever, like, um, like she was as well. I wrote that, uh, segment down when she started talking about their, uh, Miss Bree love when her and, uh, I guess Kali, Mr. Bree love when their relationship started to fall apart when uh, they were upset about money and this, that, and the other. This is on page uh, 118, if you got the book. Their marriage was shredded with quarrels. She was still no more than a girl and still waiting for that plateau of happiness, that hand of a precious Lord, who when her way grew, when her way grew drear, would always linger near. Uh, only now she had a clearer idea of what drear meant. 
Uh, it just goes on to talk about what a shiftless no good uh, Mr. Breedlove is and he's drinking and fighting about money and doesn't like his job and that religion thing. I think that that discussion they were saying that uh, white Jesus is the husband uh, and that's why so many black females are comfortable with the males not being present at church uh, because you don't think well of it. he's inferior anyway as she says pretty clearly uh, in this book as several characters say uh, consistently throughout this book the males are inferior anyway so it's fine for them to not be here the ideal image of a man is white Jesus wasn't um, before the recording ended didn't she say something about Jesus is my husband mm-hmm. at the end something like that That is not an uncommon refrain from some of uh, in, from some black females in the South in fundamentalist religion involved in fundamentalist religions. I know the Pentecostal for a fact that that's a, that's a that Jesus is my husband, Jesus is my man, and they say it quite proudly. Um, I've heard that. She says uh, the last. Oh, my fault. Sorry. No, go ahead. Just that passage at the end is my maker. This is uh, Miss Breedlove talking. She says my maker will take care of me. I know he will. I know he will. Uh, besides, it don't make no difference about this old earth. Uh, that's there sure is to be a glory. That's where uh, the recording ends at, where she's showing her disregard for uh, her husband and just. Keep it focused on white Jesus. That's all. And then what's, what's interesting um, uh, uh, to the uh, caller who was saying how um, in, in the Pentecostal church, you know, black women are saying Jesus is my husband. But it, it seems in the Bible that God, you know, in the Bible holds high, uh, marriage in high regard. Uh, it even... Um, makes mention if I'm remembering correctly um, where it, it says for wives to not put the church before your marriage before your husband um, so a lot of times it, it, it could be people's misinterpretation of the very God who they say they serve um, <laughs> you know you know, a lot of people probably, you know, are saying that they're Christians, born again or whatever, and, and don't read the Bible, don't know the Bible or what have you, don't even really truly follow the very, you know, God who they say they serve. Is it, I, You know, I often think, I said, just like white people misrepresent our image, they've gone around misrepresenting the image of God, the creator, nature, everything. They lie on us. They lie on the Creator, and um, and and looks and it looks like a lot of these women who are saying these things and that's incorrect on on several levels. Mhm. But the other piece is, if you look at any number of churches, as black churches, there are a lot of single women in there. Mhm. And you know and. Uh, they they are not married. They are not trying to have uh, 
a family um, that they've been disenchanted or disenfranchised and they're embracing um, the illusion of this religion mm-hmm. that, you know, they've given up on fighting for for this life and they're, they're mm-hmm. putting it all into the, the so-called mm-hmm. afterlife. Right. And you know, and it and it, it it discusses about all of these different doctrines, you know, that, that people come up with that aren't, you know, from the from the creative. It's a lot of mess, you know, and people follow it, you know, and then they'll say, "Oh, that's of of the creator," or "Oh, that's of God," and it's not, you know, is is of course, of some person. Well, the the creator gets um, cre- uh, credited with a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, just just like we do. We we are blamed for everything that's that's wrong. I thought that last uh, the closing passage as she describes the the sex with. Um, with Charlie, uh, it was was very interesting in how she, how much she needed his touch. Mm-hmm. How how maybe how much she missed it, how much she needed it, but she she wasn't going to let him know. She wasn't going to communicate and share that with him um, up front. She just she wanted to just take it from him that she felt strength, she felt beauty, but she wasn't sharing that with him, and um, which made me think about that that previous passage of how their relationship had become tattered by quarrels. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Um. And it makes me, you know, think about how a lot of black females who are out there trying to do it on their, do it by themselves and having it all and do it without a man, I don't need a man, or just what the struggle is between black males and females today when that it boils down to that both really needing to figure out how to connect and just touch one another in the absence of it, the absence of affection. I'm foreshadowing a bit, but that's going to uh, be a major theme down the home stretch of the book. Um, black males and black females uh, having some form of affection touching one another uh, and how even that can be corrupted uh, under the system but that's going to be a major theme everything she just laid out down the home stretch we should have two more weeks uh, before we get to the end of the book so that'll be uh, it'll be huge I mean that's going to be the dominant theme last two weeks of these study sessions Uh, last five minutes any more any other comments folks want to make sure they get in before we conclude
I've enjoyed the sharing of perspectives about this, um, this story. Quite poignant, and the fact that we're all over, all over the world, or the United States at least, and to sharing this is really interesting. I'm going to throw a question out. I guess we can answer it next Friday. Um, when, with us, when is an argument just an argument? When is a disagreement just a disagreement? Is is every argument disagreement that black people have amongst one another? Uh, does it always have to be um, dissected? So much. Can it just? I mean, amongst people, you are going to have uh, disagreements. Is is everything that we have a disagreement about? Does it always have to harken back to uh, we're arguing because of racism, white supremacy? Um, or is it just, when is it just an argument? When is it just a disagreement? context of racism, white supremacy, uh, I frankly enjoy the focus on the arguments and the discussions around things hearkening back to racism because in other aspects of my life and on the so-called plantation, you, you don't get to sort it all out when it exists and call it for what it is the way you want to. And so on the cows and the discussions on the cows, it's, it's um, I find it re- refreshing, liberating, and empowering to that the focus is on racism. It's just a perspective. Think that, do you think that the conversations focus what's confusing to you? No, I, I'm not um, speak. I'm, I'm just. It seems as if sometimes that I'm. I'm just thinking if racism, white supremacy, wasn't in existence that there would be some argument, arguing, there would be some disagreements. And it just seems that 
everything is if I and a, and a girlfriend or a guy friend may get in a disagreement, I'm, someone is going to say, oh, black women don't get along. We are, you know, and I'm, I'm just like, God, I mean, human people are going to have disagreements if the system is here or not. And it's like, when, when, when is it just that we, again, I still keep asking, when are we just people who have disagreements? Or... Do you think the system plays a part in our ability to have uh, or inability to have constructive disagreements? I think that um, the system makes it probably hard for us to believe that we can, that we are, that we are people and that we aren't just black people, that people have disagreements sometimes. It isn't, I'm not arguing with this black woman because I can't stand her or because she's black or because she's dark-skinned or something. It's, sometimes we just, people will argue. And I think sometimes we, those of us who, um, and I'm and I'm talking about myself as well. Those of us who maybe study this or um, talk about it a lot, that sometimes we just we we see everything through that prism, and sometimes it's just an argument. It's just a disagreement. Pick up here uh, tomorrow. <laughs> Compensatory call in. Um, see if other folks have views on that one. Um, I suspect some folks might be interested in picking up hearing more on that. Uh, you can tune in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific uh, tomorrow evening, Saturday. I guess folks in the UK, that would be uh, 2 a.m. Sunday. 2 a.m. Sunday. Uh, we'll catch up on latest news reports and what have you and uh, discuss, share, exchange views. System of racism, white supremacy has been an interesting seven days on the plantation. Uh, looking forward for feedback. Uh, if you catch anything, I will get this out quickly. Uh, I would not be surprised if something terroristic goes down at the Olympics. Um, it's happened repeatedly before. The Olympics is a major political event. It's not just folks running around, having a good time, playing sports or what have you. It is a major 
political event for racist man, racist woman, racist child, and they frequently have some sort of terroristic act uh, at these games, uh, 72 games in Munich, Germany, uh, 96 when it was in Atlanta, they had the bombing. Frequently, uh, they have terrorist acts. The stage is already set. They've already had massive problems with security. Uh, they had a private firm that was hired to do security, and they said they were understaffed. They ended up having to displace them and get a different group of white people to come in and provide security. So you'll already have the excuse uh, if something does happen as to why this happened, how could this be allowed to happen? Uh, even the presidential candidates have been talking about it. Mitt Romney uh, came out and made some comments about the security problems that they were having. And that was big news. Like that was all over the BBC about a month ago uh, and them saying that they had major problems with security uh, for the game. So not encouraging anyone to watch or anything like that. Just I would not be surprised if something terroristic goes down over the next, I guess, two and a half weeks uh, for the Olympics. Anywho, we'll be back uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, definitely have enjoyed the study sessions. Uh, we will be back also next week. Uh, number four, Bluest Eye. We should have two more of these before we get to the end of the book. Uh, I am eyeing. Either we could do 2000 seasons. That would also book in my top five. Or we could do the Turner Diaries. I'm just throwing that out because I have it as an audio book. Uh, and... White people say that that is a significant book. You got a lot of white people who caused a lot of damage who say, hey, this book is the Bible. Uh, Timothy McVeigh was giving out copies for free uh, to people before he, you know, did whatever he was convicted of doing in Oklahoma City. Uh, so we can we can maybe vote. We can maybe uh, maybe Gus will just make a decision. Uh, if we do 2000 seasons, people will have to read. Uh, I've just seen the pattern that. I don't know if black people are going to be committed um, to, to doing the reading and participating. It might be that they're reading and not calling in, but reading and calling in to dialogue about the book. I would love to do 2000 seasons, but that is also a tough read. Uh, I would put it up with Urugu in terms of it is not it's not an easy book to read. So if folks are willing to step up and, and read and participate, call in to discuss the readings. We could do 2000 seasons. Turner Diaries is also there. That's also something we could do in audiobook format. So you could just listen and participate from listening in. Something to think about. Anywho, we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, everybody, for participating, listening. Get the book, The Bluest Eye. Get it and actually read it. It is incredible. I'm telling you, you can read it 10 times. And, and the 11th time that you read it, things will still be popping out. And you just like, whoa, I can't believe that. This, that. I mean, it's incredible book. Toni Morrison, phenomenal writer. Uh, we will do our quick prayer. It has been time. Replace the system of white supremacy with justice immediately. Invest in the cows if you think it's constructive and definitely share with other black people if you think they would benefit. Context of white supremacy signing out. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.